WAPG. It's the Airline Pilot Guy. Airline Pilot Guy, episode 367. Hello, you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The view from our side of the cockpit door with your host, Captain Jeff, broadcasting live from Studio 1A at APG headquarters. Today's show is recorded on the 23rd of March, 2019. Today's episode, French investigators say there are clear similarities between the crashes of two Boeing 737 MAX 8s, and a private British pilot is jailed for violating rules regarding his plane, which crashed a year and a half ago. More news, your feedback, and in today's plane tales, high in the sky. So get all settled in, tray tables and seatbacks in the upright and locked positions. Electronic devices powered on. I'm Radio Roger, and Flight 367 is ready for pushback. Thank you, Radio Roger, a real aviation, no, radio professional and aviation geek in the New York City market. And you're listening to the Airline Pilot Guy Show, an aviation podcast where we talk about aviation news and cover your aviation feedback and other stuff as well. And joining me here today... From his studio in the English countryside, professional photographer, former RAF, RAAF fighter pilot, current captain for an international airline based in London, it's Captain Nick. Well, hi there, Jeff. Isn't it great to be having a show? The sun is up, and I'm just wondering how much of my pay is being spent employing a professional anchorman from a New York radio station to read our intro. I'd say approximately 100% of it. No! Yeah. And also here from his studio near the historic Concord Cover Bridge in Smyrna, Georgia, a barbecue master, a motorcycle rider, pontoon boat skipper, underwater photographer, and captain for a major U.S. legacy carrier, Captain Dana. Great to be back. It's unbelievable to be here on the show today. So looking forward to talking a little bit about that underwater photography uh, experience and uh, another fantastic show on the EPG with these two great gentlemen. They say gentlemen. Well, you know, sometimes. <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> well, gr- like, yeah, great to see you this morning, Dana. It's been a couple of shows since we've it- heard your uh, your voice and uh you have been where sir uh i took a little jaunt uh, fulfilled the bride's uh, desire in bucket list item to visit the wonderful state and islands of hawaii hawaii over there, okay say over there properly yeah well you know uh before you left you were talking about uh how you were kind of um not really looking forward to the the, the transportation portion of of this trip Uh, how did that work out well you know to be honest with you you're right i was not looking forward to it and a long time to go over or to be on an airplane for me especially being as a a small of a guy i am no i'm not very small i'm very broad shouldered so i had the unique opportunity to take uh, acme one uh, over and uh, it turned out 
not too terribly bad, actually. 10 hours and 13 minutes going, 8 hours and 58, I think it was, coming back. Uh, so it was, it was uh, that's the fly time. That's not the block time. Um, but uh, I have to I have to admit it was a, a quite a nice experience. Uh, the, the the part that I uh, dreaded was sitting there doing nothing, which uh, towards the end of the ten hour flight, after they were all out of uh, certain liquid on the airplane, uh, after I consumed it all uh, and watched uh, just about three movies. I found at the end of the flight that I was trying to rush through to get through the movie because I ran out of time. So uh, it was uh, an enjoyable experience, and I'm very thankful and appreciative of the fact that I had the ability to and also had the uh, experience of being able to buy that uh, upgraded seat, Uh, even though for me personally, uh, very uncomfortable when I lay the the seat down because, you know, the way that they they construct these – uh, seating units, uh, they're they're like little condos, and when the seat lays back, because you have to have room for the person's feet in front and back of you, um, so it kind of goes at a little angle. Well, it goes into almost like a little cocoon, so it goes very narrow when the seat lays completely flat, and I just can't uh, lay flat. So, but in the recline position, very very comfortable. So, uh, all in all, uh, I have to say. Uh, even though I was dreading the long flight, it wasn't too bad. Actually, uh, spoke to the crew and got to visit the condo in flight. Uh, so I got to see what the rest facilities were like on the three thirty, and uh, realized that yeah, uh, probably not the best airplane for me to bid. <laughs> so <laughs> they're not they're not that uh, spacious, huh? They, I mean, very comfortable, very comfortable mm-hmm. looking, but the bed's still pretty narrow. Mm-hmm. I would probably have a tough time getting. Very comfortable. Triple seven. That's where you need to be. Yeah, if I could hold it. So that would yeah. be another. Oh, the, uh, oh, the seven eight. The Dreamliner has. Uh, I've I've been in there and slept during a flight, and I tell you, that is a really comfortable crew rest up there. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could make do. I just like my uh, my part of my expression, piss poor attitude about getting on an airplane for that amount of time. Uh, it worked out pretty good, but you know, I did have some uh, liquid. Uh, liquid attitude adjustment to help me uh, deal with the uh, length of the uh, flight and actually, to be quite honest with you, even today, which is, uh, well, just actually one week exactly, I am still trying to adjust my body clock. I am still really <laughs> screwed up. Uh, Long but haul that, is probably not for you. Not not particularly. Um, but then again, I was over there for two weeks and my body completely adjusted. Oh, yeah. And going westbound um, was far easier mm-hmm. for me to adjust than it was coming eastbound because what we did was just stayed up late. Uh, once we get o- got over there, we arrived at, I think, right around 4.30 local time, which was 9.30 East Coast time. Uh, so we just stayed up until, you know, essentially a late, late party night, 2.30, 3 o'clock in the morning. Our body clock time went to sleep and, and really adjusted. Now, of course, you know, I have always had the best luck in life, as we all know. And the, the day before we left, I came down with bronchitis. Oh, no. So, yeah, that uh, so I ended up having to get treated over there uh, with my, 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 just called my primary care here. And he called in some uh, antibiotics and some cough medicine. Well, I, I did discover that cough medicine over not over-the-counter, but prescription with alcohol, not the best combination after you've been on a flight for 10 hours. So <laughs> my poor wife had to deal with that. So, But uh, other than that, uh, yeah, going uh, <clears throat> going all the way there was not as bad as I anticipated. 
Well, very good. Well, so how was uh, how was the time over on the islands? All right. So this is the airline pilot guy uh, Hawaiian experience uh, show today. And okay, well, hang on. I'm going to see if I can find some. Um, Oh, music. music. Yeah. Well, if you notice, I mean, I know everybody uh, in, that will be listening to this cannot see the attire. There we go. So one of the first things that happened to me when we got off the airplane in Hawaii is uh, I got laid. Oh, L-E- boy. L-E-I. L-E-I, people. Not oh, the, pe- the flowers. The, the family show. The yeah, flowers. Exactly. Okay. And if you saw the, the guy that gave me the lay, my wife and I are lays, uh, you would know that it was just a uh, actual flower arrangement that goes around the neck because certainly he was not the most attractive individual but uh you know i i gotta be honest and i'll keep it very brief uh to the best I, that i can um but let me start off with the people in hawaii thank you very much uh what a fantastic group of people that live on that island they are very friendly uh, courteous accommodating and uh, full of zest for life. That's what my experience was of the Hawaiian Hawaiian people. Uh, so very, very in- enjoyable. Uh, so we, our first stop was in Oahu, which is uh, everybody may know that. Uh, <clears throat> so anyways, um, going back to the Hawaiian, I, I am wearing a Hawaiian shirt today with my lace, my not flowered lace, but my hard permanent lays. Uh, so anyways, got to Oahu and spent uh, five days in uh, Honolulu, or in the, on the island of Honolulu. Got to see the Dole Plantation. Got to see Waikiki Beach, which was enjoyable. Um, got a personal tour uh, in a uh, 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 hired vehicle for uh, just the two of us for the first day. And got to see the North Shore. Got to experience the shrimp trucks. Got to experience some very good local food. Uh, and then um, my buddy Matt, who flies for an airline base out there, happened to be on uh, working and spending a couple nights in Honolulu. So we spent a couple nights with him um, and went to what I think was probably the best experience on the entire island, the Polynesian Cultural Center in Ohio. Oh, that is good. Yeah. It was amazing. It was, you learn, it, it, and for those folks that are familiar with Epcot and Disney, very similar type of uh, philosophy. It is um, um, really an, a deep cultural immersion into the Polynesian culture and how the different islands of Polynesia, which include uh, Fiji, Tonga, um, Tahiti, Hawaii, Hawaii, and I'm forgetting the one that's close to New Zealand. I'm forgetting the name of it. Um, but all those different um, cultures and how they became all one. Uh, it was an amazing experience to to have that personal tour uh, of that culture, and then of course um, we because we had a guide, uh, not uh, you know we went in a small group, and we saw their amazing uh, display of uh, it's called the parade, and it's a water parade, uh, and then at three o'clock the the Fiji um, have a special uh, marriage ceremony, which uh, is. Uh, um, given by a uh, Fijian priest. And then what was amazing about it is our guide made sure that anybody that was married was there because the three o'clock show has a uh, re, um, re, you, uh, renewing of your marriage vows oh, nice. under the, the Fiji way. So it was it was very nice. So that was the end of, um, I'm going to stop on Oahu, but it was a beautiful island. 
uh, lots of traffic. I, w- I was not a big fan of Honolulu. Um, lots of lots of tourism, and I just I felt like I was in Miami in the middle of the you know, Pacific Ocean. So I, it wasn't my favorite. Um, Maui, uh, absolutely spectacularly beautiful. We uh, we spent uh, uh, four nights in Maui. We rented a motorcycle, did the road to Hana. I had to look it up after I did it. Uh, I didn't realize I, I knew it was curvy, but 620 curves one way turns curves. Yeah, who crazy. doesn't love curves? Yeah, I love curves. So, well, I went round trip that day. Hang on a minute. 620 curves one way. That means you just keep going around in a circle? No. (laughs) Because sometimes you're going to have to turn the other way. Otherwise, (laughs) yeah, it it was both ways. Both both ways. Okay. No, 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 no. no. Like left and right. Left and right. Semantics. 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 Sorry, David. Carry on. He couldn't help himself. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't blame him because I set him up for that one for sure. So yeah, a total of twelve hundred and forty curves, both ways. Uh, and then we we instead of uh, if you think of uh, of uh, Maui, it's actually an island of two volcanoes. So and it's known as the I think it's the Valley Island or something similar to that. But you get two volcanoes. Almost looks like uh, I can't. It's a family show. Anyways, two volcanoes with a valley in the middle. <laughs> I think we got it. West, <laughs> we stayed on the west side, like Twin Peaks. Yes, yeah, kind of like Twin Peaks. Exactly. Okay. Yep. Gotcha. Kind of exactly. So, uh, anyways, we stayed on the west side, uh, in Lahaina, which is a beautiful resort town, a great uh, downtown. Great. And oh, by the way, if I didn't mention it, because everybody knows I'm a foodie. There wasn't one bad meal on that on any of these three islands. The food was all fantastic. Um, anyway, so we rented a motorcycle and came out of uh, Lahaina over on the went to the north route uh, over the uh, north road, which actually for about seven or eight miles is a single lane road on cliff. So it was um, actually prettier than the road to Hana. And so it was uh, overlooking these magnificent cliffs, looking over the ocean. And the entire time, actually, I didn't mention Oahu because I didn't want to dwell on it. Uh, but uh, the weather in Oahu was uh, rainy, cold the entire time. Hmm. Um, so we didn't get to enjoy as much as we would have liked. By the time we got to Maui, it was absolutely stunningly beautiful. Still very windy. So the ocean um, ocean chop was uh, quite, quite up. Um, so it was actually made it much more stunningly beautiful uh, seeing these uh, huge waves crashing on these huge cliffs. In Maui also, we took a, a helicopter tour on Air Maui. Fantastic as well. Um, enjoyed that and got to see some, actually the world's tallest sea cliffs over there in Molokai. I, I get them confused. Molokai, Molokai, Molokai and Molokai. Molokini Crater, I think that's how it is. Um, so Molokai has the tallest sea cliffs, and we saw that from the helicopter as well. And I got to draw, dive the Molokini Crater, which is mostly submerged crater. Um, the coral life in Hawaii, not so pretty, but the fish life, absolutely gorgeous. Uh, got to take a lot of photographs of um, fish that I have never, ever seen in the ocean. And one of the most magnificent things when I was in the water, um, and I know a lot of my diving friends are very jealous, was I got to hear whale songs. It was spectacular to hear underwater the songs of whales. 
Um, so <clears throat> I actually uh, tried with my camera. I, I wasn't trying to uh, do the, pho the uh, photographic magic I can perform. I was just trying to get a, a general broad picture, but I also was able to record some of those whale songs using my, my camera. So if you ever I, want to hear the music of whales, you can always ask Captain Al to sing for you. <laughs> Because so he's from was, Wales. That's very true. Yes. Yes, he is from Wales. That's that is Wales, 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 and Wales. Very big fishes <laughs> are Wales. So uh, finish it up because Maui was the you know short little tour. My favorite island we get to is Kauai. Uh, again, take the helicopter tour. Uh, one of the most spectacular places I've ever been in my entire life. Uh, you've got uh, rainforest. You get the rainiest spot in the entire planet. Um, on top of the, uh, um, the Mount, I forget the name of it, because all these Hawaiian names, and I can't remember half of them anyways. Um, <clears throat> so uh, we got helicopter tour there. And then just on the other side of it is the basically Grand Canyon. It's the Grand Canyon of uh, the Pacific, they say. It's all dried, arid um, canyon, beautiful. And then on the other side of the canyon is the Nepali coast. Uh, absolutely spectacularly beautiful. Um, we then were able to take a, a Zodiac tour. Maybe it doesn't know what a Zodiac, if you've ever seen military commercials where you guys are getting off a boat, uh, it's basically an uh, a, uh, inflatable with a hard uh, shell bottom with a uh, uh, couple engines on the back and it's high speed boat that you sit on the actual side of the boat. Um, and we, we got really lucky because the uh, captain, she said, uh, 10 days a year about is about the best conditions that can ever be expected. And we got one of those days. Uh, we were able to go into some uh, caves uh, in the boat um, and got to see some of the most beautiful uh, scenery I've ever seen uh, from the boat on the Nepali coast. So Kauai, again, a, a fantastic time. Uh, took the, uh, I, I, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the helicopter company right now, Sunshine Helicopters. Uh, they were fantastic as well. And in, during all that, so I can throw the aviation uh, into it as well, uh, beyond the helicopters, which, of course, I'm scared crapless of whirly birds, uh, but both experiences were fantastic. Uh, I do have an hour-long video. I don't know if there's a way that we can post it. Well, let's play uh, that right now. No, I'm just kidding. Um, yeah. <laughs> But if there's a way I can share that, uh, I would love to share that uh, uh, Kauai uh, video of the... Uh, yeah, we can we can uh, upload it to the uh, APG uh, YouTube channel. Yeah, I'd love to share that because it was amazing. Okay. Absolutely amazing. Excellent. And then uh, Hawaiian, uh, I got to fly on them uh, in, inter-island on the 717s. So uh, the crews on board, I mean, of course, I was all paid, not non-ribbing. So I'm a paid passenger upgraded on one of the, the legs to first class. Because by the time I figured out that I was paying for check bags, well, it was about the same price as upgrading first class and getting the free bag, free bags. So we did that, and the seven one seven experience on Hawaiian was uh, fantastic. A little, little bit different than the way Acme operates, um, but you know what can you expect on a twenty seven minute, or thirteen minute, or, or a forty four minute flight? Because that was the, uh, the flights between all the islands. Uh, only had, I had three of them. And that was it with Hawaii. Uh, came back and, and uh, made it back in one piece. And then I've decided to pick up some flying. And oh, by the way, not to plug this, but everybody uh, had uh, a meetup, which we'll get to here in a second. But check uh, the APG schedule, the calendar out there, because I've got a lot of flying coming up. I've picked up, picked up quite a bit of flying. 
Um, and so this past week I picked up a trip, uh, supermoon. We had a supermoon this past week and I, one of my most memorable experiences is took off from Atlanta and right in the windscreen was that supermoon. It was beautiful. Super. It was super, super. So, and just a little shout out to Steve and Ryan, a couple of uh, APG listeners that were uh, on my flights this past week. Uh, Ryan, uh, Steve was just on the flight to Savannah and came up and said hello. And Ryan was, uh, my FO noticed how starstruck he was. He was the fueler up there in Madison, Wisconsin, uh, came up and said, are you Dana? Yeah. Like Captain Dana? Yeah. Oh my God! I you know I listen to your show. It's all, and he was just mesmerized. Uh, looks like he's looking to uh, continue his um, his flying career. And of course, I'm very thankful that he's listening to the show because you know he he takes the the uh, the advice that we uh, that we give out and and, and helps him. So <laughs> I know, right? It's it's crazy. Don't take any of our advice, please. Don't don't. And the last thing I want to finish up with is, of course, the last day of vacation, which was not supposed to be until April. Uh, the company came out with the displacement, which is how I ended my vacation. Not a very happy way because they are displacing 240 captains off my airplane. And uh, that's uh, closing on Monday. So we'll have to see how I hope you have your out. displacement preferences all in order. I am trying to decide between the 757 and 67 first officer or the Airbus baby bus first officer right now. Could you, you can't hold captain on the uh, Airbus? No. Okay. I am. How about the 717? Can you hold captain on that? Out of all the captains in ATL, I am about 120 from the entire bottom of the list. So I have 106, I think it is, uh, below me now on the 88 in the left seat and only 18 in the left seat on the 7-1. Okay. And so the, in other words, no, <laughs> you can't. Well, there are a lot of things in play here. Mm -hmm. and, you know, with so many wide body positions, the thing that, that's, yeah. that may hurt me is that there, there are very few narrow body positions in the ATL enough to compensate uh, for the junior guys that would try to move to the left, so I could stay in the left seat. So um, the wide body, obviously, uh, you know, uh, the triple seven, five seven, six seven have a ton of openings, and then the seven three has, I think it was thirty seven, mm -hmm. and then the the uh, seven one coming to Atlanta, they have eighty, what eighty one, I think it is positions open. However, you know, if you do the math on that, there's still one hundred and fifty guy, one hundred and thirty something guys ahead of me. So it's going to really depend on who bids what and where and, and, you know, what they backfill as to whether I am able to hold the left seat. And I'm, I've been talking to Julie. We, we, are, we are actually considering moving, and it's going to be, have to make be this weekend that we make the final decision, um, but considering moving to the metropolitan New York area on a permanent move hmm. uh, where I'd be senior for the rest of my career uh, and be able to be a captain. Not so sure it's going to happen because uh, a lot of reasons. So um, we'll have to wait and see. But I, I would say 50-50 I can hold, say, as a captain. Um, if not, then I'm this weekend going to make that final decision. I spent I was up until about 3 o'clock in the morning last night uh, looking at the bid packages of each aircraft to see if which one I would prefer. But there's a significant pay uh, decrease, obviously, and a significant pay 
difference between the two airplanes. So that's where I'm at. That's that's a sum, summation of the last three weeks. Wow. Hope, hope that wasn't too long. <laughs> well, I think uh, that's the end of our show. Thank you, everybody, for joining yeah. us today on the Airline Pilot Guy Show. The Hawaiian Airline Pilot Guy Show. Yeah. No, that was interesting. Thank you. I'm having issues with my equipment over here. That's oh, she, that's what she that's said. That's what she said. Yeah. All right. Um, so thanks, Dana. Well, let's continue with you since we're already on your part of the uh, first part of the show, the intro. Um, you said something about um, a, a meetup that you had this past yep. trip. Buffalo, New York. I had uh, my good buddy that I saw in Hawaii, uh, Matt, pick us up. Uh, he was gracious enough to pick my first officer and I up and took us to a place that will be mentioned in the meetup. Okay. Audio. And we got to see one of our favorite listeners from Buffalo. Oh, I think I know who that might be. Might be. All right. So let me, uh, without further ado, let me play your meetup audio. Hey, BG community. This is Captain Dana. I'm sitting here in Buffalo at a very, very, very good wings place. Probably the best wings I've probably had in my life. Maybe. Not uh, discounting some of the other places I've been to, but certainly the best in Buffalo called Duff's. And uh, sitting here with some great, uh, great company. We have uh, my first officer, my buddy Matt, who is very happy to come pick us up and bring us out here to Duff's. And of course, uh, as everybody would know, our friend Tiffany, who's our librarian for the podcast. So I figured I'd go ahead and do a... Uh, a quick recording and get everybody's uh, take on how the day has gone. So I'm going to hand it over to Tiffany because I'm sure everybody's tired of hearing my voice. So here it goes. Here's Tiffany. Hello, APG community. So happy to be on this meetup with Dana and two other friends. We had an amazing spread of wings with a couple of different sauce options. We had an excellent fried bologna sandwich and amazing conversation as ever. Um, I was saying how lovely it is when you meet new people through this particular podcast and it feels like you've known them forever. Conversation just flows very easily. We had lots to talk about and I have had an excellent afternoon. So now passing this over to to Dana's first officer. Hi, I'm Paula, and I'm Dana's first officer on this trip that he's on. Uh, I've had fun flying with him and uh, seeing his fans from the podcast come up to us at different points on the trip. Uh, I know they were excited to meet him, and it was fun for me to see that happen. So I've uh, been enjoying it. Here's Matt. Hi, my name is Matt. I'm good friends with, uh, with Dana. We've known each other now for... Uh, almost 13 years. He's a uh, fellow New Englander like myself. Um, Dana's been uh, not only a good friend, but a mentor to me throughout my aviation career, spanning from uh, our days at, uh, at uh, our former, at our fr- former regional carrier. And uh, he was actually Acme Jr. Um, currently, I'm flying for a U.S. major carrier, and I've uh, been there a year and a half, but uh, I have Dana to thank for a lot of uh, my uh, achievements uh, thus far in my uh, short airline career. But happy to host him. I, uh, I'm now a native of Buffalo, New York. I've been up here five years and uh, have been able to sample a lot of the wing joints around here, and uh, Duff's is definitely at the uh, upper echelon of the uh, 
of the wing capital of the world, as they like to say here in Buffalo. So happy to have him and his uh, first officer and his friend Tiffany uh, here. And it was a nice lunch. And now I'm going to digest my 11 wings and I'll hand it over to Dana. But look forward to uh, joining in on a future podcast. I'll be listening in now uh, since Dana has uh, kindly uh, showed me how to download the app. So uh Look forward to uh, being part of this community. So for all you, uh, all you uh, aviators out there, fly safe. Back to Dana. All right, guys, that was fantastic. Uh, certainly great to be here with uh, some fun folks. We've had some great conversation today and a uh, very enjoyable afternoon. So in the meantime, I'm going to go ahead and say back to you, Jeff, in the studio, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Have a great day, everybody. Well, thank you, and it uh, sounds like you all had a great time. We, we did, and actually Matt was uh, a bit disappointed, to be honest with you, because well, he, would, he asked me, he said, do you ever have guest hosts on the show? And I said, well, as a matter of fact, on time, time we do. He says, well, why don't we record the show today, and I can be <laughs> on the show. <laughs> he was so disappointed that we, were, we did not uh, have him on the show, uh, and that I didn't bring the recording equipment. Oh, I didn't well. even think to do so. So... I didn't think he'd want to. And I had, if I was smart enough, I would have asked him ahead of time. So sorry about that, Matt. We'll oh, get well, you. some other time. He's, he's, he's a, uh, he's a, a uh, FO at, uh, he don't want to say it, but Hawaiian doesn't really matter. He's mm-hmm. an FO on the, uh, on the 321 at Hawaiian. Oh. Loves it. Excellent. Long commute from Buffalo, though, let me tell you. Does he really live in Buffalo? He really lives in Buffalo, and it's too late commute from Buffalo wow. to Honolulu. That's it's exactly crazy. It is kind of crazy. (laughs) There must be a good reason for that. Uh, Because uh, he was stuck at the regional Mm -hmm. um, for 11 years in the right seat, never able to upgrade to the left seat because of all the stagnation. Yeah. Probably has some uh, roots now in Buffalo. And has roots as he's getting married in August, which Uh, we will be there for. Um, So we are. Uh, he, he, you know, we had a very nice conversation after that. We ended up going out with his, I, I ended up going out for dinner with his fiance and him, you know, with, with, with Matt and, and we had really good conversation. So she is open to the, uh, the possibility of moving out of Buffalo. I, I don't think Matt wants to move to Hawaii. So the West coast would be a great option. So the, it'd still be a commute, but, uh, uh, you know, online commute on, on Hawaiian be far easier, uh, in on uh, on a much shorter one leg commute so uh he's not opposed to that so great opportunity for him he's moved up quite a bit and uh, it was a great day you know i surprised tiffany because actually uh paula was my first uh, female fo that i've ever had at acme and a fantastic pilot she flew uh kc-135s retired from the air force after 20 plus years um, really, uh, really, really intelligent young lady, and she really enjoyed uh, meeting Tiffany. I think Tiffany enjoyed the same, and Matt was just uh, elated to be there as well. So it was a great day. Okay. <sighs> First thirty of the minute, thirty-one minutes of the show is gone. <laughs> <laughs> sorry about that, everybody. But hey, it's been a while. It has been a while. It has been. Okay. Uh, let's see, Captain Nick, are you still there? Are you, are you awake, sir? <laughs> sorry, sorry. Uh, I, I, I'm, I, let me just get it. Yeah, I'm here. 
So, hey, uh, how have you been, sir? I understand that you're um, you're back. Uh, we, we talked about that on the last show, didn't we? The, yes, we the did. back issues. That's right. Yeah, that's right. You were all uh, on drugs. That's right. I remember that now. All dried up. Now, sadly, I had to uh, get a uh, um, a six-monthly medical done, and uh, the doc uh, took my Amy took one look at me and said, uh, well, I'm not going to give you a medical in your current condition. So I can't actually fly at the moment um, when it's all fixed, and it won't take that long. I've then got to reorganize a new medical, which is going to be a, a and the pain so uh, and it's that that's going to probably going to keep me from uh getting to washington on my next trip so my apologies for anyone who's expecting me there but that's probably not going to happen well almost certainly not going to happen um after that i've got a uh, a long uh barbados so you know three nights in barbados that should be Okay, but uh, but apart from that, everything's uh, fine. Thanks. My back's working all right, but it just has periods of uh, I can't. I was start the show sitting. I'm gonna have to stand because I can't sit for any length of the time. But uh, we're getting we're getting there. We're getting there. That's good. And the only other thing I was gonna mention very quickly, Jeff, was that mm-hmm. I'm uh, off to do one of my talks uh, with uh, the Aviation Society. Uh, TAS, who uh, are a group, uh, a widely known in the UK group of aviation enthusiasts at Manchester Airport. And it's the largest aviation society outside of London. They have over 1,200 members. Hopefully they won't all be there (laughs) waiting to (laughs) listen to me. Otherwise, there's going to be 1,200 very disappointed people. Uh, And they've been going for uh, over 45 years now. Wow. Uh, and they have a, a fantastic um, uh, runway visitor park, uh, an area near the end of the runway at uh, Manchester where uh, aviation enthusiasts can watch the aircraft. They have regular social evenings and talks and things, and I was lucky enough to be invited to go and give them a talk on Monday about my career. So that's something I'm preparing over this weekend, getting some pictures together. But that's going to be Monday evening. I think it kicks off at about 8 o'clock. If you happen to be in the Manchester area, I think you might need to be a member, but I'm sure they'll allow visitors to uh, attend um, there. So if I could just give them a little plug. They have a fantastic shop there as well. They've got one in one of the terminal buildings and one at the um, park, the Runway Visitor Park. Uh, they do uh, tours of Concord, educational visits, all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be uh, uh, very good, and I'm looking forward to meeting those folks on uh, Monday evening. But apart from that, my world hasn't changed very much at all. Well, uh, should we mention that um, in May you're going to be here in Atlanta uh, for your last trip at Acme Red? We're hoping, anyway. And uh, I believe that uh, Monday, the 13th, the first night that you uh, arrive, we're planning on doing some sort of a big meetup here in Atlanta. Yeah, that'd be great, wouldn't it? It would be lovely to meet as many uh, of the listeners who could possibly make that. So uh, um, I'm no idea of the exact details yet. I don't know which flight I'm taking in, but I have been promised a flight, a two-night flight to Manchester. Sorry, to Manchester. I've got <laughs> to Atlanta 
on uh, on that date. So uh, it'll go in the diary on uh, Slack. So if you are a Slack follower, you should be able to have details there. And when we get uh, a venue and a time, uh, we'll be sure to let everyone know. If you are not yet on our Slack team, I'm telling you, there's one person that would be very disappointed. Well, we're going to hear from him at the end, and he's going to tell you how you can join our <laughs> Slack team. Um, but yeah, please do. And also just, uh, you know, take a look at the uh, APG community calendar every now and then, and you'll see uh, events and such on there. Yeah. All right. Um, and let's see. Also, we should mention, uh, Dana, I don't believe you mentioned that you're going to be in Toronto on April 11th. I kind of alluded to it that okay. uh, I've got a lot of travel coming up and that we need to go ahead and, uh, you know, have people look at the, uh, the, the calendar, calendar, not, yeah. not to be afraid, but yeah, a calendar, uh, well, actually you had sent a photograph of somebody that's, uh, retiring from the military and it's the same time we'll be in Toronto. So, yes. uh, yeah, I wish it could be in both places, but, uh, Toronto will be. And looking forward to meeting up with Liz and hopefully uh, many other of the APG community will uh, venture out. So we'll we'll post something and Liz is working on where we'll uh, where we will be getting together. Uh, but I did pick up that trip specifically because it had that nice long Toronto. There you go. So if you're in the Toronto area, um, look on the calendar, look out for the meetup there on the 11th of April. All right. Uh, for me, I was on a four day trip. It was just a, well, not really much to mention. It was nice weather and it was a good trip. Uh, oh, I did have a little incident, a little, uh, uh, electric, electric fumes, uh, smoke and fumes event. Actually, there was no smoke, just the fumes. Uh, but, um, maybe I'll talk about that some other time. All right. Uh, that was it. Uh, as I said, a nice, easy trip. Three legs, first day, two, two, and one. One and done on the last day. So it was very nice. You know what this is? Uh, Talk to the hand. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Those folks that can't see the video, that was me putting my hand in front of the camera. Jeff's comment about his easy trip and my hand in his face. Seniority oh. is a nice thing. It is indeed. It's a good thing. That's the reason why you still be a captain. I'm going to be an FO. <clears throat> yeah, well, maybe you'll get some seniority then, huh? I will have a lot of seniority. That's excellent. All right. With that, I think we need to... Is there anything else that we wanted to talk about? I don't think so. Let's move on with the uh, coffee fund. Johnny, how much more coffee? No, thanks. I love coffee. I love tea. I love the APG community. Coffee and tea and the Java and me. A cup, a cup, a cup, a cup, a cup. That's Jeff Smith singing the Java Jive. And the reason why he's doing that is because I pushed this button right here. It says Java Jive. Oh, it's because it's the coffee fund and it's your way to support the show financially. And a couple different ways to do that. And I'll tell you how. You can learn more about that in a minute or less. Uh, but since the last show, using the classic coffee fund contributed uh, contribution method, we have Jeff Moeller, David Wilson, Frank O'Connor, Terry Liu, Chris Randall, David Lieb, and Garrett Daughtry. Daugherty, maybe. 
D-O-U-G-H-E-R-T-Y. I don't know. Um, but thank you, Garrett, for your contribution and everyone else. Uh, the other way to do it is to become a patron of the show via Patreon. And we don't have any new patrons this week, uh, sadly, but uh, we do appreciate all of you out there who are. And if you want to learn more about Patreon and the classic coffee fund contribution method, head over to AirlinePilotGuy.com slash coffee. I'm sure you'll be glad you did. Stand by for news. This is Captain Jeff to Captain Nick. Uh, come in, please. Come in. <laughs> I can only just hear you, sir. <laughs> what are you doing? What in the world is going on I, there? Sorry, I was just trying my... You look like my... a student aviator with a headset on. <laughs> I was trying oh, look my, at that. Uh, Wait a minute. Is that a my, Heil? My radio headset. Does that say it Heil? It is Heil. Wow. Yes, it does say Heil. Wow. Where'd you get yeah. that? Well, it it's uh, to go with my new uh, uh, my new, new hobby HF radio, oh. um, you know, radio amateur. It's a it's a really nice, uh, high quality uh, audio headset and microphone. But anyway, uh, I was just seeing if it worked with the gear here. Does it? Obviously, Nick, the mic, Nick, mic doesn't. Nick, are you still retiring? <laughs> yeah, I seem so. to be buying a lot of gadgets. That <laughs> this, this is my retirement present to myself. Love it. Love it. Wow. We'll talk later about that. Yeah. All right. Excellent. Um, so let's start with uh, the first item in the news, which is just a big, hot mess. Uh, we talked about this. Ha- this event occurred on the 15th of May in 2017. And uh, the next show uh, that we did or the show that we recorded right after this happened, we talked about this and we kind of surmised and I went back and listened to it actually, because there was a discussion about it on Twitter. Uh, the, um, we were, uh, kind of coming up with what our eye or speculating what had happened here and guess what? I think we pretty much nailed it. And then I think the NTSB, uh, were listening to the show and they used pretty much everything that we said on our recording in this final report. No, I'm just kidding. They didn't. Uh, they no, I in. have noticed that a, a lot of agencies are now just copying everything we say. <laughs> it must save them an awful lot of time. Exactly. We're just kidding, of course. Um, anyway, this was a Learjet 35A, November 452 Delta Alpha, departed controlled flight while on a circling approach to runway one at Teterboro Airport, TEB, Tango Echo Bravo, in New Jersey, just north of Newark International. They impacted a commercial building and parking lot. The pilot in command and the second in command died. No one on the ground was injured. The airplane was destroyed by impact forces and post-crash fire. Um, And there's a really good, uh, we're going to have all this in the show notes for you to look at, but there's a really good uh, video that was produced by the NTSB that does a really great job of summarizing the flight. Also some uh communications uh air traffic control communications 
uh, between the uh, mostly, I guess, all the captain who was um, the pilot monitoring, apparently, and uh, the uh, air traffic controllers. One of the things, one of the many, many things that the NTSB cited in, uh, as causes or contributing causes to this thing was the fact that uh, the second in command, the co-pilot, was not supposed to be flying. Um, he was, uh, the company policy was for him with his experience to only act as pilot monitoring, I guess, until he uh, had got some more experience. And uh, as I said, this whole thing was just a big mess. Uh, they started the day flying from Teterboro to uh, Bedford, Massachusetts, and then from Bedford to Philadelphia, and then finally Philadelphia back to Teterboro. And uh, there were some major errors with their flight planning. Uh, if you listen or watch the uh, video, you'll hear um, a conversation, or they'll talk about a conversation that he's having, thinking that he is like more than an hour away from Teterboro uh, after they've already taken off from Philadelphia, and it's only like a 20-something minute flight. And he is completely, you know, we talk about being behind the airplane. <laughs> he was way, way behind the airplane. They didn't um, even talk about the approach. They didn't brief an approach. They didn't do any checklists. Uh, apparently, the whole time, uh, the pilot in command uh, was instructing the second in command. And apparently, there was a lot of, a lot of um, expletives uh, there as well. Not in the video, so the the video you can watch with the kids around. There's none none of that there. Uh, that was uh, something that was captured on the cockpit voice recorder, which we do not have access to. Um, and then a long list of findings from the NTSB. But basically, the bottom line is I came into this approach for runway six, and uh, because the winds were quite strong out of the north, they uh, needed to come into six because of the proximity of Teterboro to all the other New York big airports. And then at a point about four or five miles from the end of the runway, they break it off and then circle to land on runway one. Um, apparently, they didn't start their turn for their, their circle until about a mile from the end of the runway. And if you look again, watch the video, you'll see that there is absolutely no way that they could possibly pull off that maneuver. And of course, they didn't. Uh, instead of going around, which they should have, uh, they continued the approach. And at the very last minute, the uh, co-pilot told the captain, you have the airplane, because he knew that this was not going to work. And he didn't want to be you know, a part of this. So he uh, get, handed over control within the last 15 seconds, I think, to the pilot command, the, the captain, and banked it up, got too slow, stalled, classic, uh, you know, low speed uh, and probably high angle of attack, probably very high bank angle as well, trying to maneuver the airplane to get into position to land on uh, runway one. It was a, um, it was a big mess, as I said. Big case of get there right, I think. I don't, you know, just a big case of what are these people doing flying airplanes? I mean, there was right. no planning whatsoever. None. Was the uh, the pilot in command actually an instructor? I don't know. 
Because, I mean, it, it seems to me that he was uh, trying to do something that was inappropriate for the flight anyway, because uh, the the other guy should not have been uh, flying at this point. And uh, if you're not a regular instructor and well up to speed, and Dana will, I'm sure, back me up on this, mm-hmm. you can lose so much situational awareness when you're trying to coach someone that you yourself get. Uh, start making mistakes and it's much harder to monitor what's going on when you're trying to instruct and unless you're doing it in a formal and well-structured manner you can lead yourself right up the garden path so even if he was quite a reasonable pilot himself he overloaded himself uh, appallingly and i i'm just uh, reading the notes here 131 explicit expletives that uh, explicit yeah. E- either way. <laughs> no, I think it's... You uh, can have it, an expletive if you want. Or expletive is another uh, allowed pronunciation. Yeah, rude words. Yeah. Uh, uh, in uh, in 30 minutes, I'm going, that's... Uh, if any instructor... Re- that's worse than Dana. Say that. <laughs> I way <know>. worse. <laughs> I, I would say just absolutely smacks of poor professionalism. Oh, yeah. Uh, there was no professionalism at all. Yeah, th- this this is a classic case, I think, of uh, you know general aviation uh, lack of lack of uh, structure, a formal structure, um, and how it can go awry. Even if you are flying for a flight department and you know with formal policies and procedures, um, I think it, it, even with that being said, uh, you end up with a, a, a very slack type of environment sometimes. Uh, not all the cases, um, but this case certainly is is an example. I agree with you 100%, Nick. Uh, if you are not experienced enough and or don't have the qualifications to be instructing, which is uh, a, a talent within itself to be able to multitask and do things and, and do them in a certain way that is safe, and obviously not in this case, was uh, it was not done safely. Uh, so this pilot obviously should not have been doing that. Uh, and, and, you know, devil's in the details. That's that's what my mantra is whenever I'm flying an airplane, whether, I be fly, whether I'm flying a, uh, a Mad Dog, a Cessna 172, 152, devil's in the details. You always want to have everything, all your ducks in a row, uh, and this guy clearly did not. So... Hey, uh, to answer um, Captain Nick's question about whether he was an instructor or not, item finding number 16, because the company did not have a Learjet qualified management pilot or Czech airman on staff during the accident second in command's period of employment, Trans-Pacific's jets graduated uh, SIC qualification policy could not provide him and the other company Learjet second in command a viable, well-structured path to gain experience as pilot flying. So uh, there were, uh, that was just one of many, many, many findings here. Now, if, if I remember correctly, and, and, and I may be off base here, but I think I, I may be right because I was talking to my buddy um, Dave that actually flies a Lear. Um, you don't have to actually be qualified to sit in the right seat. The pilot command technically actually um, is... You know, you don't have to go through any formal sim training is what I'm trying to say for SIC. Pilot Command actually has the ability to teach uh, based on the FARs on, in Part 91 mm-hmm. for that airplane um, or it's any similar airplane. Um, 
So I, I don't, I, I, this gray area, I'd have to do the research, but I don't believe you have to have a type rating B, SIC is what I'm really saying. No, I'm saying, uh, well, the NTSB said basically they complied with the basic requirements of Title 14 Code of Federal Regulations uh, 135. Uh, and uh, But they're, they're recommending that the company come up with a CRM program and a safety program and a tracking, pro- all kinds of, uh, of uh, things that they recommend. Uh, but uh, I think they, you're right, Dana, they basically complied, but doesn't necessarily mean that it was the best thing. No, I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, and, and just by the use of so many explicit, 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 explicit in such a short amount of wow. time. No, 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 expletive. <laughs> expletives. They're, they're effing expletives, Okay. <laughs> Uh, expletives. I think I think we have the title of the show. Yeah. Thank you. Okay. You know, so but what I was trying to say really is that with so many expletives, expletives, however you say it. Thank over you, here Captain L. Swear words. <clears throat> Thank you. That's swear easier. words. With so many swear words in such a short amount of time, uh, tells me that the PIC did not have the proper demeanor to be uh, instructing or giving any type of advice to anybody. Yeah. No. And I'm just going to finish my comments by saying that uh, when you start in aviation, if this, if these are the type of building blocks you're using to base the rest of your career on, what kind of a pilot are you going to end up? You should start off by doing absolutely everything by the book, every checklist, every procedure correctly, because if you then try and move on where to an airline which expects you to do everything properly, you're going to find it really hard having had such a gash and um, lackadaisical approach to flying and having been taught that way to make that transition. You'll never, ever be a good pilot. So I find it very disturbing that people early on in their career uh, can be receiving such poor uh, training. Yeah, I think we all agree. Well, and, and, and interesting enough, uh, my FO's husband, I'm going to use, uh, uh, I'm not going to use the company name, uh, hired a 250-hour pilot uh, to fly for a major corporation's flight department. And interesting enough, that exact same, what, you, what you're talking about and what has happened here is the exact same scenario that they are faced with right now because this person is now a PIC and hasn't had that formal structured training that, that we at the airlines and or the military are, are used to. So you can't gain that really good experience without that really uh, good structure. And that is one of the, uh, I think, one of the uh, failings of the GA community when you talk about corporate you know, flying. Is you've got all these people that are beg, beg, borrow, and stealing trying to build uh, time experience so that they can eventually have the opportunity to either become a PIC in the corporate world and or try to get on with the in the airline world and they're not getting the proper training they're not getting the proper foundation I, I experienced that myself so you know there there is uh, there is that very uh, big loophole in the system I think yeah I find myself very very blessed that uh, all of my training has been all you know, super high caliber, very structured, very standardized, very, uh, you know, starting basically to fly in the military and then going directly to, uh, I think, you know, one of the best, if not the best legacy carriers out there. And uh, so um, I read about these kind of things happening and I just shake my head thinking, wow, 
how bad could it possibly get? Yeah, well, I mean, my first my first experience in the jet was uh, I got into uh, a privately owned uh, corporate uh, um, CJ2. I was going to say the Mustang, but it's not quite the Mustang at that point. CJ2, the guy put me in the right seat and said, hey, let's go fly. And I flew a jet all the way to uh, just south of uh, south of San Antonio from, from Fulton County. I had no training on the airplane, had never been experienced in the airplane, and was just, uh, you know, the, the, the pilot for the, the company. And so he had the ability to put me in the airplane in the right seat because, uh, you know, he's, you know, current and qualified in the airplane. And he was teaching me now, you know, Fred was excellent, but you got to understand, I, I understand where, where this guy in mm-hmm. the right seat was trying to build his time because I've been there. It, oh, sure. It, it, I'm not blaming, it's, it's, I'm not blaming him oh, no, for this at all. It's no, just no, no, a, no, a no, sad thing that he had to come up in this environment and uh, look where it got him. But even some of the best training programs doesn't, you know, look, yeah. look at, look at Buffalo. I mean, it, 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 even some of the best training programs can have, have some shortfalls too. So yeah. nothing is perfect out there. You know, we just have to take it in, on, on as an individual pilot and make sure that we, we, you know, do our best possible job to, to uh, make sure that we don't end up in situations like this one. Right. And as Captain Al says in the chat room, hello, Captain Al. Uh, trouble is, Jeff, we shared the airspace with these guys. And so that's why we have to always be very vigilant uh, out there every time we strap an airplane on. Yep, good point. All right, B, uh, Ian uh, sent us this news item. Um, let's see, he says, hey, APG crew, Ian Griffin, uh, I thought you'd be in- interested by this plane crash that occurred up here in Canada. That was caught on a dash cam. I know it's Canada. Uh, nobody was injured, but it was pretty spectacular to watch. And yeah, you really do need to see this dash cam video of the incident aircraft, a Cirrus SR-20. And they were taking off from Buttonville, I believe is the name of the airport, Toronto Buttonville Airport. And at 1348 Eastern Daylight Time on the initial touchdown, I guess they were doing some pattern work at Buttonville. Uh, they had already done a uh, touch-and-go, or perhaps, I don't know if it was a touch-and-go or a takeoff, but they were in the left-hand traffic pattern. And then they were coming back for another go. At 1348 Eastern, They on initial touchdown, the aircraft bounced, and full power was added to commence the takeoff portion of the touch-and-go. The nose of the aircraft was raised. The aircraft became briefly airborne before returning to the surface abruptly. The nose was raised again, and the tail of the aircraft struck the runway. Or is that the tailpipe, Nick? Um, this is a serious <laughs> good, uh, good point. Yeah, uh, struck the runway, and the aircraft became airborne again, albeit briefly. As the aircraft contacted the ground the third time, the outer right flap hinge and right wheel contacted the ground outside of the runway surface laterally, approximately 1,000 feet from the runway end. The nose was raised again and the aircraft continued the takeoff roll. As the aircraft left the runway surface longitudinally, still on the ground, it struck a four-foot-high fence located 60 feet from the runway end. Past this fence, the terrain slopes down towards 16th Avenue, which crosses the departure path perpendicularly. The aircraft crossed 16th Avenue in the air in a right bank and dragging the right wingtip. That's where the dash cam video comes into play here. You'll see the uh, the airplane as it's scraping its right wingtip on the runway going right in front of a very large vehicle 
Uh, north of 16th Avenue, the terrain rises rapidly. The aircraft collided with the ground, came to a stop approximately 250 feet past the end of runway 33. The two occupants were wearing four-point safety va- uh, belts and received no significant injuries. Wow, that's a there's a plug for a four-point safety belt. Uh, the aircraft received significant damage to the wings, nose, tail, landing gear, and propeller. Uh, the aircraft was equipped with an Avidyne Flight Max Integra flight display that recorded engine and GPS data. The unit recorded data at 10 hertz, or one data point every six seconds. This data was acquired and analyzed by the TSB following the incident. It was noted, following the initial touchdown on runway 33, the engine RPM and manifold pressure increased to full, followed by a significant reduction, and then a return to full. During the touch-and-go attempt, the recorded ground speed steadily decreased from 61 knots at the initial touchdown point to 52 knots shortly before impact. I kind of wish we had Steph with us today, Dr. Steph, because she is a Cirrus pilot herself, and she might be able to give us some, uh, you know, some some idea of if these speeds are normal for this airplane. It seems kind of slow to me for a Cirrus. Very slow. Okay. That's, that is actually very slow for Cirrus. Yeah. It should be in the 70 to 80 range. So, yeah. Um, I know the Cirrus is a little bit more high performance uh, as far as GA aircraft are concerned. Um, and uh, apparently uh, things can get out of hand quite quickly. Again, please look at the dash cam video uh, link to it in the show notes and you'll see how I believe the two occupants of this airplane are very lucky to be alive. I wonder where the mixture was. It doesn't say it. No, it, it doesn't says the say man, uh, engine RPM manifold pressure. Yeah. So I wonder if that was a factor in this. I don't know. Anyway, interesting. We'll, uh, keep our eyes and ears open. Maybe Ian, if you're listening, um, if you see anything else regarding this, if they have an idea of what really happened there, please let us know. We do appreciate it. Our APG community is awesome, isn't it? Yeah, it is. It's fairly common for these uh, bounces to end up in serious uh, incidents because, uh, you know, having bounced the aircraft and got airborne, usually uh, nose gear hits, main gear hits, nose gear bounces up aircraft, leaves the runway in a sharp attitude. Uh, you know, unless you get the power on quickly, uh, hold a decent attitude and let the aircraft mush away from the ground, you could often end up in one of these um you know kangaroo situations down the runway i'm sure um dana you've had to deal with a few students i certainly have uh, on the tornado i remember one of the new pilots arriving on the squadron manages to get managed himself to get in one of these situations and on the third bounce uh you know i had to take control because uh, we were going to end up um smacking the nose wheel in so hard we were going to break the airplane um and, um, you know, when you do, you almost, unless you've got it drilled into you what to do, it's almost uh, it's really hard to get yourself out of the situation. Yeah, I mean, every situation is different. And certainly that was one of the first things that came to my mind was, okay, they're going, you know, they're doing touch and goes here and, uh, you know, light and variable winds. So it's, it really is probably not a, uh, you know, wind component issue here. Um, 
engine failure would be one of the things that I'm thinking about and on a newer aircraft like that. Um, oh, I know what it was. You probably pro- pulled the, uh, the parachute. They no. could have. No, they didn't. Could. <laughs> <laughs> we they talked about have. that on the last show, Dana. And, uh, the, uh, yeah. We know you've got to be at 400 feet before you can do that. You need a, you need a, about six hours or so to catch up with all the stuff that we've talked about since you've been gone. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, there was a, a successful parachute uh, recovery of – it wasn't successful for the airplane, but it was successful for the two occupants of the aircraft out in the middle of the Caribbean uh, off the Bahamas. And uh, anyway, interesting story. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it is interesting, and it, and it could very well be, uh, you know, the uh, there are several. What I'm trying to lead to is several factors. I think that could have been, it could have been mixture, could have been engine, could have been improper control of the aircraft. It, it, it's just, there's yeah. a lot of different scenarios here. We'll, we'll just have to wait and see what the TSB comes up with. Again, thanks, Ian. Let's move on to C, pilot Robert Murgatroyd. Heavens to Murgatroyd. Jailed over a crash when bird watchers narrowly escaped death. We talked about this uh, on an earlier episode. Uh, and uh, I believe, Nick, you said that uh, your, uh, your flight crew, uh, fellow pilots, knew about this gentleman and his escapades. Escapades, that's the right word. And um, anyway, uh, he, was, um, he, he showed up in court and they... Um, uh, sentence him to uh, three years and six months at Manchester Crown Court. Let me let me tell you what happened here, and just in case you're just now listening to the show for the first time, like uh, me, yes, uh, had charged three. <laughs> yeah, now, I don't even think you're listening now. <laughs> I'm listening. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. Um, Robert Murgatroyd, we call him Bob, uh, had charged three men, I'm just kidding, uh, 500 pounds each to take them to see a rare bird off the island of Barra, or is it Barra? I have no idea. Never heard of that. Uh, Barra Island. Barra, okay. In his Piper PA-28 aircraft on September 9th, 2017. Uh, the uh, uh, Anyway, uh, the plane crashed on farmland shortly after takeoff injuring two of the passengers. Uh, turns out that the investigation revealed the aircraft was 420 pounds over its maximum weight, and Murgatroyd's insurance was void as he held a private pilot's license and not allowed to run commercial flights. That would require a commercial license. And uh, so anyway, uh, looks like he was... Uh, wasn't he the one that said that he did such a great job of landing the airplane after he screwed up by taking off overweight, that they should make um, a movie of him and this whole thing. That's exactly right. He tried to claim <laughs> that he was the hero of the day. And I noticed that obviously he is so notorious out there that even Captain Owl knew about him. So uh, these two pilots I flew with uh, on the flight deck both came from the Manchester and they both knew about him. So he was just apparently an accident waiting to happen. And it did. And it did. And now he's in jail, which is probably a suitable place for him. Yes. All right. A happy ending. Well, not for him. Uh, let's no. see. Item D. Black box data from doomed Ethiopian Airlines jet showed clear similarities between both Boeing 737 MAX crashes. 
let's see. So it's very similar to the deadly crash of one of Boeing's top-selling 737 MAX aircraft last October. Again, according to the French accident investigator that downloaded the information from the flight data recorder, uh, Ethiopian Airlines Flight 302, a Boeing 737 MAX 8, went down shortly after takeoff from Addis Ababa on March 10th, killing all 157 people on board. The Wall Street Journal, citing anonymous people familiar with the matter, reported Sunday that a grand jury issued a subpoena to at least one person involved in the development of the plane at Boeing. It said a prosecutor from the criminal division of the Justice Department was listed as a contact. The journal also said that the Transportation Department's watchdog was scrutinizing the FAA's certification of the new 737 planes. Boeing had added an automatic anti-stall system to the MAX jets, we know it as MCAS, uh, when they went into service in 2017 that was not on older 737 aircraft. Uh, Indonesian investigators have indicated that as a possible that as a possible factor in the Lion Air crash in October. Uh, so, and you know, we've talked about this uh, incident and the Lion Air uh, accident as well. We're still, I believe, waiting. I haven't checked this morning before we started uh, recording the show on the 23rd of what month is this? March. Um, so, I don't know if there are any new. Uh, items, uh, breaking news regarding this, but it's really not looking great for Boeing and the FAA because uh, we're learning more and more about how this uh, this version of the 737 was kind of rushed uh, into certification and some of the um, responsibilities for certifying the aircraft were delegated to Boeing engineers and uh, not strictly the FAA. And, uh, yeah, as, as yeah, I was reading, uh, Sully's comments on that, uh, aspect of the incident, mm -hmm. uh, saying that, uh, he felt, uh, quite strongly that the FAA, because of budget cuts and personnel cuts were no longer in a position to be truly independent. And because they were gonna, they were having to delegate some of these responsibilities it wasn't a situation he was happy with and i i agree oh yeah i that. think we all agree yes. uh, apparently uh you'll remember that uh airbus uh was was making plans for the uh 320 321 neo new engine option and uh, to compete with that uh, boeing was scrambling trying to do something with the 737 to uh also be attractive for people looking for that kind of uh aircraft performance and uh, they they kind of uh, rushed things and tried to install systems that uh, would allow for quick certification of the new model and also to sell to the companies potentially uh, the potential buyers that oh you're not going to need to worry about you know having a new certification or a new category or a new uh, type rating on the airplane that if you know how to fly the or you're certified and type rated on the 737 700 800 900 uh, you can slip right into this cockpit and we'll give you some some training via your ipad like an hour's worth of you know differences training and you'll be good to go unfortunately mcas and who knows what other system might actually be there that nobody was told about we don't know that for sure i'm just throwing that out there uh, we're not uh, we're not 
given that information was not given to the pilots flying the airplanes and uh they're not happy about that and, and there's a common theme in this the common theme that i'm hearing in 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 you you know it, it's it's all about money about cutting corners to yep. save money both the government uh boeing and you know the fact and matters companies are all interested in saving time and money yep. and not you know having to certify uh, you know, in a, a, a crew member on a new piece of equipment has been the driving force of the 737 going from the 100 all the way now to the max is how many different versions of this 60s design. Yeah. So, uh, you know, if, if you look at the 707, the 727 and the 737, they basically all have the same fuselage, just different wing and tail you know, a design. And uh, so it's, it's really an old design that they're just trying to put band-aids on. And, you know, it's nothing wrong with the 737 per se, but now you, you, you start and change CG and having to put, uh, you know, poles on, you know, on its butt. So it doesn't go on its tail when you're unloading and loading the airplane and having to put all these, you know, other apparatuses on the outside of the airplane for stability. Uh, you know, it, the red flags should be going up and, and they're not because of, of the mighty dollar. Or the mighty you know, currency, whatever it happens to be, and I think that's I think that in itself is a tragedy. Well, I think we're all going to know. You know, the investigation continues. I'm sure that we'll be all enlightened when the investigation is finished with this. I believe that it's not going to be a good outcome for for Boeing and for the FAA as, uh, when they look at this and really scrutinize this. No, but we don't no, know. I mean. You know. No, exactly. But even to the point where a uh, an angle of attack disagree uh, between the two vanes they had in the aircraft, uh, if you wanted a detector to display that to the pilots that the two AOA vanes were mismatched, you had to pay for that. And of $80, course, a lot of airlines, yeah, a lot of wow. airlines will think, well, that's a lot of money. I'm not going to do that. Right. But that should really, in my mind, have been a certification requirement. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And that as a minimum and you know uh, even better uh, have some kind of a device that compares the output or input from these two AOA vanes to see if they match or they're close if they're not then there there should be something that uh, deactivates the MCAS uh, in my opinion anyway a lot of a lot of stuff to digest with this um, and I'm sure we're going to be talking about it for for some time but uh, absolutely Sadly, we will. Yeah. Yes. Um, A lot more to the story. And speaking of more to the story, you'll recall that we talked about the uh, United Express uh, Embraer 145 jet flying from Newark, New Jersey with 31 people on board up to Presque Isle uh, International Airport in Maine. Oh, was that the one with the undercarriage lodged in one of the engines and it was just sitting there looking very sad in a lot of snow? You would have thought that they would have noticed that on the pre-flight. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. UFOs, they don't know how to do a proper walk around these days. <laughs> so we're, we were, you know, wondering exactly how in the world something like this could happen. Obviously a, a hard touchdown. And we're thinking, yeah, a very, very hard touchdown. I guess they initially came in for an approach. They uh, went around and they try, came back around to try it again. 
And oh, by the way, I need to say something on when we were talking about this incident. I believe I was doing the show in Philadelphia with Jeff, and uh, he was mentioning something about the uh, NOTAM uh, regarding the ILS system being inoperative or the glide soap or something. Uh, but I think that was actually a NOTAM that was published after this occurred because they basically took out that that part of the system but oh, dear. i just wanted to be yeah so anyway it looks like uh the ntsb aviation accident preliminary report released thursday says that uh the aircraft landed between runway one and taxiway a in light to moderate s- snow in other words they did not land on the runway they landed between the runway and a taxiway the radar tracking system shows that the plane was aligned right of the runway during both its first approach when the pilot decided not to land and the second approach when it did touch down of the 28 passengers and the three crew members on board two passengers and one crew member suffered minor injuries the aircraft also substantially damaged uh, the accident also substantially damaged the plane um uh, let's see. Uh, they're talking about some passengers uh, and their experiences. Um, one said the first impact was hard and violent. He said the plane then bounced four or five times before coming to a stop at a location far from the runway. The plane literally is nowhere near the actual runway, he said, adding adding that snow plows had to remove snow so that emergency responders could get to the plane to help the injured passengers uh, the scene wow. inside the plane was uh, of chaos with people screaming and seats coming apart. Uh, anyway, so that's an interesting little fact uh, that the airplane didn't even land on the runway itself. So which kind of begs the question, did they really, uh, well, they apparently didn't know that they were not landing on the runway. Um, I'm wondering how well the runway had been swept. Did it, did it look like the bit they landed on and, and had all the runway lights or runway markers been uh, sufficiently cleared so that the pilots could actually see where the edge of the runway was? Yeah. I don't know. Doesn't sound like it. No, it doesn't sound like it at all. And, you know, if you land between the blue and the white lights, that's generally a good place to land. Mm. Yeah, no, not really. I was going to say, <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> oh. I was going to do that next time, just just on just your side. Just, 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 just try to <laughs> see if you keep the blue lights on one side of the airplane, the white lights on the other side of the airplane. Generally, that works out really well for you. I, yeah, I like I to keep imagine. them between the white lights. Yeah, generally, that's a very good idea to okay. keep the white lights, uh, in, in you know, the on left and right side of you because that means you're probably going to be touching down on concrete, not it's, soft grass. Yeah, it's it's also important, by the way, Dana and I probably know. Uh, there was a, a incident in, I think it was Columbus or was it Dayton? I always get the two airports confused. Sorry. Um, well, but, so, uh, sorry for your passengers who yeah. end up at the wrong spot. Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, sorry about that. Uh, but I mean, as far as the layout of the the layout of the two parallels are kind of similar, and and in my well, anyway, one of those Ohio airports. Sorry, Jen. Yeah, sorry, Jen. Um, the uh, it was a low visibility approach, low ceiling. They broke out, and I guess the airplane was slightly right of centerline, and uh, they ended up landing kind of off, kind of partly on the runway and partly off the runway uh, because they didn't realize that the right uh, edge lights of the runway were not centerline lights. 
the air, the uh, runway did not have center line lighting. Ah, so mm. you have to be very careful when you're briefing these approaches, and spe- especially you know in real instrument conditions, that you know what you're going to be looking for when you break out. Yeah. And apparently, they thought that they were right smack dab in the middle of the runway, but they were actually right smack dab on the right edge of the runway. And uh, oh, that wow. was yeah. How embarrassing. Yeah, uh, yeah. Not a problem that I usually have, uh, luckily. Uh, I don't think I go anywhere where there isn't center line lighting. Yeah. Yeah. I would ma- imagine that almost everywhere you go has the full the full deal. Yeah. yeah. But you're across out, out in the boondocks fairly often. <laughs> yeah. It, Sorry, It's Jen. very true. <laughs> <laughs> I know they're not the same. Uh, but in this particular case, in my mind, Jen, with the runway layout and I, I just it must have been Dayton it could have been Columbus <laughs> it's just Ohio it's yeah it's Ohio mid Ohio or whatever it's somewhere it's somewhere in, in middle mid Ohio yeah it's, do it's they have so cars cool. in Ohio or do they drive around in buggies still <laughs> you know now that I'm thinking about it it definitely was Dayton not not Columbus so there you go okay uh, Jen says of course Alaska up air apparently thinks Columbus is in Cleveland so, yeah, <laughs> interesting. Yeah, well, think- Columbus thought he was heading for the uh, the uh, for Japan and the Spice Islands, and he landed up in America. Isn't That's that true. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he started it all. That's true. Shouldn't have named the city after him. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Not a good example to set. <laughs> no, no, apparently not. Not at all. Okay. And speaking of uh, bad examples. Thank you for listening to the Airline Pilot Guy show. Have a good day. <laughs> Bye. Yeah. Captain, incoming message. Hey, I don't know if you've ever heard of this guy. His name, Miami Hick, not his real name. <laughs> uh, he Up. sent us some feedback. And mm-hmm. uh, let me start with this oh by the way uh, he did send us some feedback earlier was it last show that we played that i think yeah uh and he asked me to say this and i forgot so my apologies uh brent he says if it's not too much trouble could you mention that his company of 14 years is closing its doors soon and he'll be looking for a new job maybe i'll get some good karma from everyone okay everybody good karma Good karma, jobs karma for for uh, for Brent. Uh, I mean Miami Hick. He is a tractor trailer driver. Uh, he'd prefer local or regional, not over the road. You know, like long trips. So, if you're listening and you're in the general Atlanta area, uh, let us know because uh, Miami Hick is looking for a job here in the future, in the near future. Yeah. Well, good luck with that. Anyway, uh, so let me play this. This is Miami Hick. I had some feedback about the feedback on the last show. Y'all got it all wrong about the bars on your shoulders. At least at my airline, Acme Red Neck, uh, the bars stand for how many bars I went to before I showed up for my flight. And that way the senior captain can know just how drunk I really am. And as far as bringing food to the crew on the on the flight whenever i uh, take a vacation i always bring food for the crew uh, on the, on my flight uh, the night before i'll cook up a couple of fish plates 
bring them in my carry-on bag with my socks and underwear <laughs> it's always a big hit i know because the look of surprise on their face is just they just can't believe somebody would be so nice to to do that for them and that one guy that sent in the audio feedback works at that gas station and got his uh ppl i know that guy i've flown with him a couple times uh it wasn't a very long trip uh in fact it was a quick trip Miami Hick, over and out. <laughs> Dana had to mute himself there. He's laughing so hard. <laughs> <laughs> that was good. That was yeah. very good. Oh, wait, wait. What? Wait a minute. Hang on a second. I There's something here. It looks like he sent some kind of a video. What's that? Up in the sky. Is it a bird? Is it a plane? MD 88, man, what's that? That's old as hell, man, that's whack. The mad dog, more like the sad dog, more like the old dog, cause that's an old plane, man. Probably made in the 1800s. I don't even know if that was even round when the dinosaurs was around, but it's so cool. Hey, that's you, Captain Jeff, flying around in that rusty bucket with the white mustache. Hey, why you doing that? That's brilliant. That fantastic. That's really funny. I love funny. the watch. Wasn't that fantastic? <laughs> wow. Way to go, Miami Hick. Yeah. Um, Miami Hick, I would disagree with one statement, though, on that thing. It's not the last of its kind. No. The 717, which is actually a Mad Dog product, it's really not a Boeing. It's an MD-95. He doesn't want to hear that. Ah. Yeah. And it wasn't, it wasn't Hick, by the way. That was Puppet Hood. <laughs> <laughs> yeah did you see the the t-shirt i don't know if you could see the video okay uh that was it. great yeah sorry at all i could have done with subtitles uh being yeah. an englishman well i asked um brent to send me the lyrics and uh so he did and i'll include those in the show notes so you can you can try you can uh, uh follow along but uh but you want me to you want me to read them to you yeah and, sure okay um, what's that in the sky? It's a, is it a bird? Is it a plane? 
MD-88, man, that's what, or what, what's that? That's old as blank. Man, that's whack. <laughs> the mad dog, more like the sad dog, more like the old dog, because that's an old plane. It was probably made in the 1800s. I did actually hear that part. Uh, I don't know if that was around when the dinosaurs was around, but it's so cool. That's you, Captain Jeff, flying around in that rusty bucket with a white mustache, man. Why are you doing that? You're not going very fast. I'm surprised it can even stay above the ground. Ah, but I'm going to give you some advice. Maybe you should sell it for some parts. I know it's not nice, but hey, I'm just giving a couple of pointers, hoping you can do so the mad dog can rest in peace, because I feel that plane just waiting for the day it can R.I.P. six feet underground. That's the sound. That's why I hit you with the underground sound. Mad dog, sorry I had to tell it to you. Mad dog, I know it's not fair. Mad dog, waiting for the rest. Mad dog, want to go with the rest. Mad Dog, the last of its kind. Mad Dog, wish you could die. Hmm. No, <laughs> no. Mad Dog, no. feel so bad. Hey. Mad Dog, <laughs> feel so sad. Uh, that is sad. Yeah. Excellent. Very, that very, uh, that was wonderful. Uh, that was awesome. That's fantastic. I'll put those uh, those lyrics in the show notes so everybody can, can read along and weep. Anyway. So you do rapping in the church choir? Uh, no, I don't, obviously. <laughs> <laughs> I need to have the music in the background. You know, I didn't have the music. Yeah. Okay. Anyway, thanks, Miami Hick, Brent, for that. Uh, very, very well done, by the way. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Very cool. You really went all out on that one. Very nice costume, too, the, the puppet. Anyway, <sighs> again, that was uh, Brent and, or also known as Miami Hick. And hey, we're all glad you're back, man. Yeah. All right. Shall we move on? Please. Okay. Uh, let's see. J.J. Pittsburgh writes, I've been wrapped up in preparation for recording the vocals for my album with my music partner, Doug. Oh, I wonder if he had anything to do with that uh, rap. No, I don't think so. And once that wraps up, W-R-A-P, I'm looking forward to getting to my first APG meetup, hopefully Oshkosh. Anyway, yeah, we hope so too. Awesome. Since I've had music on the brain, I was wondering if any of your flying adventures have had you cross paths with any famous singers or bands. And Captain Jeff will have to do a duet at Carry or uh, we'll have to duet at karaoke sometimes since you're a singer yourself. Well, uh, what will we sing? Ha ha. Blue skies and tailwinds. Prince, peace and love. JJ. Um, hmm. Yeah, that might be fun. But um, and we hope that we'll uh, get to see you at Oshkosh. Any um, Dana? Any any yeah, famous no. singers or, or? Yeah, I had the Beach Boys. The original wow. Beach Boys. Yeah, I had them wow. on my airplane. Well, it's going back a couple of years now. Mm-hmm. But they, they were not interested in me or my captain at all. The beautiful flight tents, we actually, you know, a rare occasion, but it happened to be the fact that we, <laughs> that flight, we had some very young and beautiful flight tents on the flight. I, I guess it must have been 
ironic or 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 what what was a fate that they had these beautiful young ladies so i actually have uh, pictures of them in the jetway with the flight attendants who they were very interested in and uh, yeah so they were really cool very nice guys nick uh well tom jones of course who hasn't had the chance to meet tom jones what a marvelous gentleman um so uh he, he signed um a bits and pieces for every crew member uh, so I, perhaps uh panties and uh all sorts of things <laughs> i got a sick bag but um, oh nice <laughs> yeah, <laughs> unused i hope uh yeah luckily. good um, although it might have been worth some money if he'd, yeah, a bit, a bit of Tom Jones and a sick bag. Yeah. Uh, and, um, of course, uh, you know, I, I never used to keep on, I still don't keep up with, uh, the bands that are, uh, new and on the scene, etc. So when, I, um, the crew told me that, uh, Jamiroquai were on board, uh, I went, eh? uh, I wasn't flying the aircraft. I was dead heading. So I was sitting in my upper class seat and, um, the lead singer of Jamiroquai asked me if I wouldn't mind swapping seats with him so he could see with the re- sit with the rest of his band. And I said, which band? No. And he said, oh, <laughs> yeah, of course yeah. I did. So I, uh, he said, which band? I said, I, he said, Jamiroquai. And I said, oh, <laughs> Jamiroquai. <okay. laughs> <laughs> Obviously. Uh, what? Yes. Yeah. So I, of course, I swapped seats and, uh, but I was thinking to myself, who the hell are they? Anyway, <laughs> uh, I'm I'm pretty sure I've Google. had some of Coldplay on, and uh, a few others, uh, plenty of actresses and actors, and some some other persons of interest, including a certain young lady who was involved with the president, uh, a past president, uh, and a blue dress. Uh, well, she wasn't, wasn't wearing it at the time. I think by that time she'd sent it to the cleaners. Ah, I hope so. <laughs> yeah. Uh-huh. So I had pl- plenty of uh, people of note on board, but um, very few of them, uh, except Tony Curtis. You remember? I'm Spartacus. Mm-hmm. No, I'm Spartacus. He uh, he came up on the flight deck when uh, in the day when we used to just have the door open and uh, spent an hour or two uh, on the flight. What a lovely fella he was. Absolutely superb. Telling us all his adventures and uh, uh, stories from uh, you know his time as a film star and things he got up to. Uh, and a very polite and very nice gent. Sadly passed away now. Uh, he, uh, he spent the time doodling a picture of the airplane uh, with Captain Nick sitting in the front. And uh, when we we were doing a, a long crossing of uh, northern Canada, and uh, you know you only had to make a position report every uh, half an hour or so, uh, and we were I think speaking to Montreal or one of the Canadian people. There was hardly anybody on their frequency. So when I uh, finished my position report, I said to the young lady, and I I said, I don't suppose you know who Tony Curtis is. And she was a bit surprised, but she said, yes, of course. I said, would you like to speak to him? <laughs> so I gave the microphone to a teddy because we had the loudspeakers on. And these two had like a 10-minute conversation. He <laughs> was, was such a nice bloke. So, uh, you know, he was he's one of my uh, film heroes uh, amongst many. Uh, oh, cool. So uh, that was an absolute pleasure. Oh, I didn't realize. Pardon? I was going to say I didn't realize we're going to do more than one. Uh, Stevie Wonder. I no, I'm sorry. You had your chance. 
I'll, I'll, I'll shut up now. No, Stevie was Wonder he flying? Awesome. <laughs> was he yeah, flying? He was. He, he, yeah. he was flying. Excellent. In first class. Yeah. <laughs> I would love to meet Stevie Wonder. He was, you know what? He was a, a, a truly a classy guy. Real, real nice. He was very appreciative. Got to shake his hand um, and just, just seemed like a genuinely nice guy. Yeah. I can't recall any like singers or bands. Uh, it seems like all of my celebrity encounters were people in movies and TV and game shows and that kind of thing. Uh, but no, I can't think of any. Well, I take that back. Dolly Parton. Oh, wow. Wait, how'd you know she was there? You know what? <laughs> very interesting, Lee. She is a very small person. Um, very short. Like four That's foot not the something. way some people would describe it. Well, but you know, in proportionally, you know, it, uh, when you see her on the screen, um, things look different. Uh, she looked like a regular person to me, but, and in all Excellent. respects, yeah, very, Which very. I love about her. She's such an upfront lady. Mm-hmm. She, yeah. she makes no bones about where she came from and what kind of a life she lead, lead, has lived. Mm-hmm. Very upfront about that. Doesn't try and hide any of that. She's uh, she's a real uh, class act. I think. Yeah, she was a very nice woman. Uh, Couldn't agree more. All well, right, she is. Um, thanks, JJ. Hope to see you in uh, Oshkosh, and uh, hope to sing a duet. That'd be fun. Uh, I guess you better tell me what you're thinking of singing, so I can kind of start practicing. Oh, I know what it'll be because you fire the mad dog. It'll be. If I had a hammer, uh, <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> I'd hammer in the mo- Yeah, right then. That's not funny. Um, uh, let's see. Um, oh, how about Islands in the Sun? Is that wasn't that a duet that um, Dolly Parton sang with somebody? I'm, Islands. I'm trying to think what. Islands in the Sun has to do with um, the Mad Dog. Nothing at all. Uh, I don't care. <laughs> we don't ever see Islands in the Sun. We're- Islands in the... Come on, help me out, chat room. What am I thinking of? What song is that? Is is Micah there? I'm he, Mike, Mike is not there. Yeah. <laughs> Kenny Rogers. And what was it? Was it uh, Island... Was it Island in the... Islands in the Stream. Thank you, Al. <laughs> you see, knowing you, I thought it would have been Puff the Magic Dragon. Uh, yeah. Well, Weezer did it. Bee Gees. In the sun. Um. Islands in the steam. Now, wait a minute. (laughs) Now I'm going to have to look it up. Just delete this from the show. (laughs) As far as time. This is all messed up. What is this doing? you there was peace unknown okay that's all i can play <laughs> otherwise youtube's gonna get upset with me <laughs> yeah, yeah that was uh you're right kenny rogers dolly parton islands in the stream islands in the sun what's wrong with me i never have been very good with lyrics but that's the good thing about karaoke it's the lyrics are right there okay just at least you have a voice to sing i don't have a voice for radio or a face for radio either Ah, uh, yes, you do. Yes, you do. Okay, <laughs> let's move on, shall we? Try to salvage the show. <laughs> a little bit of it. Yeah. Tom Seagraves sent some audio feedback. 
Hey, APG crew, this is Tom from Columbia, Missouri. I have not been a great APG community member for the past several weeks, and I'm, I've been a few episodes behind. Uh, so I'm a little late to the party uh, when I'm talking about this piece of feedback. But I just uh, listened to episode 362, and you guys uh, read the open letter that the flight attendant wrote to a rude passenger. And uh, I think, uh, as you guys said, that was a very well-written letter. And uh, so years ago, um, I, I just thought I'd share this story. Years ago, a friend of mine was a flight attendant, and uh, she had done it for several years, and she w- always had stories about how there were people that treated flight attendants very rudely and, and just treated them bad. And uh, But she also talked about passengers that were great passengers. And uh, I took that to heart when I used to, years ago, I used to uh, fly all the time, uh, all across the country for my work. And I adopted a policy when I got on a plane, I would go to, uh, go to the store and I would buy a large bag of candy. And uh, usually it was a bag of peanut M&Ms. And when I got on the plane, I would hand that bag of peanut M&Ms to the first flight attendant, and I would say, this is a gift for you. Uh, Please share it with the other flight attendants, but I really appreciate what you do for us uh, and how you take care of us. And, uh, you know, I never once gave that bag of candy to a flight attendant and did not really see a genuine response of gratitude and thankfulness from them. Uh, One particular flight, and I remember it very well, I was flying from St. Louis to Phoenix, and uh, I got on the plane, and I gave that bag of candy to the flight attendant, and I thought she was going to cry when I did that, and I went back and I sat down, and the plane got loaded, and uh, she came back before the door was closed, and she said, sir, we do have that first class upgrade available for you, and... uh, I just kind of looked at her and she said, come on, come with me. And now, of course, I did not give her that bag of candy to get an upgrade, but uh, I, uh, she was nice enough to do that for me. And as we walked up to the front of the plane, she said, uh, if you have a minute, I'd like to speak to you up in the galley. And I said, okay. And I walked up there. She kind of pulled me inside the galley and she said, I have to be honest with you. I was just about ready to give up on being a flight attendant. She said, I got treated very rudely on the previous flight before this. And she said, I had a couple of really nasty customers yesterday. And I just was kind of thinking it was time for me to get out of this business. But when you gave me that bag of candy, I realized that there are still a lot of good people that that fly on these planes. And I just want to say that I really appreciate what you did. And uh, this makes me want to keep doing what I'm doing. And uh, it almost brought me to tears. Just a very simple gesture, a a three or four dollar bag of M&Ms. And uh, uh, it just, it amazes me what people will do sometimes. I will also say that I've got a few stories of of, uh, uh, people treating flight attendants rudely and me jumping into the middle of it and kind of intervening Uh, because I just uh, when I see people treat others uh, in a bullying 
disrespectful way. It's very hard for me to hold my tongue. Um, anyway, I wish that uh, more people understood what those, uh, what those men and women go through, those flight attendants. You guys know it all too well. And those of us that either do now or have spent a lot of time on airplanes, hopefully we all know that as well. So uh, anyway, thanks again for the show, guys. And uh, we'll talk to you soon. Wow. Thank you, Tom, for sharing that story with us. That was uh, indeed a wonderful story. And you're right. Um, the flight attendants really don't get treated with respect uh, always, which is a shame. No, we seem to have had a, a series of stories, uh, though, that perhaps prove that they're such wonderful people and do such marvelous things. Um, yeah, that's great, actually. It's a good trade-in, a packet of M&Ms for an upgrade. Uh, I think from now on, having heard that, uh, there'll be M&M packets <laughs> flying the around the cabin, <laughs> yeah, and everyone will be just standing there in uh, in first class going, I've got my M&Ms. Uh-huh. <laughs> and Tom, I'm sure that you didn't do that to get an upgrade. <laughs> I just did a, a big, really bad wink. Anyway. Oh, you know, in, in back in my commuting days, I was, uh, you know, didn't have to, but I always showed up with a bag of candy for the crew. Be, you know, very appreciative. So, um, makes a difference in people's days. Yeah, little things. Yeah, make when a you show some positivity towards them, and that's actually what I really enjoy about being captain. Is you can set that eating M and M's. What eating M and M's? Yep, what that's I why I don't about. fit in the cockpit anymore, and I have to move on. <laughs> okay, well, don't go international. Ooh, yeah, oh, nice big cockpit. So yeah, that's true. Well, more even room. those will get too small for me after a while. All right, uh, we have some more audio feedback. Um, says, hi, Jeff and gang. Yet more audio feedback on family support for pilots. You'll be pleased to know I'm trying to do a bit more in terms of quality and, more importantly, quantity control. <laughs> it's easy when you, when you start recording some audio that uh, before you know it, you're like 10, 15 minutes long. And you're going, oh, look at that. Didn't realize I was yakking that long. Anyway, Tom sent us this new and improved feedback. Hi, PG crew and community. Just wanted to say it was great to hear Chad give his story so far on the Miami episode. For someone looking to make a career change, it was incredibly inspiring. And on the subject of inspiration, I also wanted to say thank you to the crew for your responses to the lengthy feedback I left a few weeks ago on the subject of coming out as a wannabe pilot. I found your words very encouraging and I believe some of the listener feedback on recent episodes has been in response. So thanks for the community push, especially Sylvie. I did want to clarify though, as I may have caused some confusion. My reservations were not about being embarrassed about being a pilot. In fact, quite the opposite, and I would certainly wear that title with great pride. But when you tell people as a father of two that you want to give up your stable job and all that security and spend tens of thousands of pounds on training with no guarantee of employment, there's a tendency amongst those who don't understand the industry or that gripping desire to fly that we all share. To assume that you're not really at all serious and that you may be going through something akin to a midlife crisis. For those you are close to, it's obviously not a problem and I'm certainly not going to let it dampen my drive. Thankfully, I have a wife who is 100% behind me and we know from recent conversations on, on recent episodes of APG 
and from Captain Nick's interview with his wife Ginny, which was fantastic, by the way, and thank you for that, but how important that support is. The reason I wanted to share this is that there may be people in the community that don't have the support in their personal lives and so the views of those in the periphery may have a bigger influence on their decision to pursue their dream. As I alluded to in my previous feedback, even though my wife Hannah is behind me and actively encouraging me now, it took a long time and a lot of building trust to get to the point where she could see how this could work without compromising the security our family needs. This isn't a side that is talked about much. But if there's anyone in the community that is struggling with that support, my advice would be it takes time, but persevere gently. Your family has to be number one, and although you might know know that and can say it until you're blue in the face, the key is you have to show it. If you want them to support you in your dreams, then you have to demonstrate to them that you'll always do the same for them. And if things start looking unstable in the approach, like all good pilots, you need an escape plan and need to be prepared to go around and hold for a while. Maybe even divert to take the analogy to another level. Unlike most other jobs, becoming and even being a pilot requires a group effort and support from your family as it will undoubtedly have a knock-on effect, both positive and negative. It's been a fascinating chain of discussion over recent episodes and has certainly put things in perspective for me, so thank you to Josine, who I think kicked it all off. Finally, changing tack slightly, I wanted to shed some light on why Captain Nick may have taken a greater exception than the rest of the crew to the Air France passenger that took his pants and shoes off during a flight. I think it might come down to one of those little discrepancies between American English and proper English. Over here, taking one's pants off denotes a different degree of exposure than should undoubtedly be confined to the privacy of one's bedroom or one's bathroom. I hope to be updating you on my progress in the near future, so watch this space. Squawking 7,000 for now. I'll let Nick explain that one. Tom. Explain that one, Nick. Squawking 7,000? Uh, I didn't get the 7,000 bit. Squawking 7,000. I, I, I know what pants are. Yeah. Okay. Was that what he was to what he was referring? I, I don't sure. know. Could you play that bit again? Because yeah. I missed it. Uh, let me see. Uh, I think I can do that. And, and while you're doing that, uh, I thought of that exact same sh- show when we were talking about uh, boxer shorts. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was at the airport traveling as uh, a positive space passenger in uh, Hawaii and saw a lady wearing boxer shorts. So, nice. yeah. So that was she a boxer? Popped. No. Oh. She was a very attractive lady. I didn't mind seeing her in boxer shorts, but uh, you know that immediately came to mind. So it's almost like a double standard because you know people don't wear a whole lot anymore. I hope to be updating you on my progress in the near future. So watch this space. Squawking seven thousand for now. I'll let Nick explain that one. Tom. Okay, so I guess it's the same equivalent to squawking twelve hundred here in the U.S., which is the VFR. Yeah, squawker. yeah, it, it's it's a VFR squawk, so that you could be identified as someone who's you know not been allocated a squawk, and uh, you but you can still be seen on the uh, transponder. I, see. Uh, I I I haven't done it for how many years? <laughs> yeah, me too. Five years. I haven't done so it in many many years. Oh, uh, we're talking about flying. <laughs> But of course, Cat uh, Allen Pip has set me uh, straight very quickly. Yes, I see that as Thank well. Thank you, guys. Um, and and Tom, sorry we we took your initial audio feedback the wrong way. We thought you were 
uh, embarrassed to say that you were uh, becoming, uh, you were embarrassed about becoming a pilot, but that wasn't it. It was like leaving the great job that you have and taking that great risk. And yeah, we understand it's uh, must be some, uh, some sort of uh, hard, difficult to, uh, to do that. Some and, sort and of difficult to do that. You guys know what are in English, don't you? Um, I can, remind me. Well, they're short for underpants. Ah, okay. So if someone say you take your Trousers. pants off, right. you, you, yeah. Okay, you're going gentleman, commando if you take your pants knickers. off, right? I think we're talking yeah. over each other. So if you take your pants off, then that would be the equivalent of going commando here in the U.S. Uh, yes, it would. Oh, I see. Exactly right. Okay. <laughs> Birthday suit. Well, but you could still have your trousers on top without the pants underneath. And that would be the going commando. Commando. Yeah, true. Okay, here we go. Um, let's do this one before we get to the plain tale. Uh, item I number have a question about that. Yes. Why do people think commandos go around without any underwear? Well, I think it's just common knowledge, isn't it? <laughs> I, can't I be, have no idea. How I can't be, you can go to war as a, as a commando. <laughs> uh, and you, I can't be bothered to put your underpants on. I really have no idea why that... That phrase is used to describe someone uh, not wearing undergarments. But, yeah. yeah, language is an interesting thing, I guess. Okay, uh, Jason, just quickly here. Uh, hi, Captain Jeff. I just discovered your podcast, and I think it's great. I'm on episode 120 now. Ooh, he's got a long way to go. And uh, you discussed a weather tool that will give you a 36-hour window on storm predictions. You didn't actually say the name, but said it would be in the show notes. When I tried to dig up the notes, I couldn't find anything. Yeah, I, I promise a lot of things. <laughs> I very rarely deliver. Uh, do you happen to remember what the tool was called? Yeah, the tool is Captain Nick. <laughs> um, <laughs> Thank you very much. Sure. Yeah. Uh, I, fly, I resemble that remark. Yes, you do. I fly a hawker. Hawker, and I'm always interested to find good weather options. Thank you, Jason Adams. Now, I don't remember episode 120 at all. I barely remember what I did yesterday. Um, but I can tell you some of the tools that I use now uh, quite often with my smartphone and tablet device. Uh, one I really love, it's called Tropical Tidbits. And that's www.tropicaltidbits.com analysis slash models. And it has some great tools in there uh, to uh, look at weather uh, projections into the future. The one I really enjoy uh, using uh, for the short range is the, um, uh, the high resolution. Uh, here, I'm trying to pull it up right now while I'm talking about it so I can sound somewhat intelligent which is very very difficult for me um yeah. impossible for me uh, let's see the uh well it starts off with the gfs uh on the left side and uh, that this will go give you like six hour increments for several days ahead and it kind of gives you some idea of the weather patterns and that kind of thing uh, the thing i really enjoy though is the mesoscale uh, tab and slide down to the h triple r the High resolution, what does that actually stand for? High resolution, 
uh, I don't know, reflectivity or something like that. And uh, it has a, a little um, scale or slider that you can look at the uh, forecasts uh, hour, uh, incremented hourly and it pro- uh, projects into 18 hours into the future. I really like that. Um, it really gives me an idea of uh, where uh, storm systems are likely to be uh, at your uh, arrival time in different places. So uh, this is a tool I use a lot, the, uh, the Meso- Mesoscale uh, HRRR product on tropical tidbits. Another place I go to a lot is aviationweather.gov. Um, and their convection page. So that's uh, aviationweather.gov slash convection. And it gives all kinds of great tools uh, for uh, convective segments. Uh, uh, let's see, uh, they use these abbreviations. Extended convective forecast plot is, uh, and gives these um, uh, forecasts for convective activity. Um, it also has... Uh, let's see, what's this other one called? It's all on the same page, the convection uh, page of the Aviation Weather Center. The uh, TFM convective forecast, I'm not sure what that stands for, TFM, but it gives you a four-hour, a six-hour, and an eight-hour forecast for convective activity. Totally freaking magic. That's that's it. Thank you, Dana. Um and uh, also, of course, the one that uh, we a lot of people have access to, the uh, SPC, the uh, Storm Projection Center, Storm uh, Prediction Center, maybe, Convective Outlook, uh, which gives you a convective outlook for, uh, the, for every 24 hours in the next three to eight days, I believe. Anyway, lots of good stuff out there. That's, uh, those are two of the sites that I use quite often. And then uh, wonder weather underground, which is wunderground.com is the tool that I use to, uh, look at temperatures and forecasts, uh, before I leave on my trip to see what I should pack <laughs> to see if I should have you know, shorts and short sleeve shirts or long pants and long sleeve shirts and, and jackets and that kind of thing, or both. Um, and, uh, it gives a pretty good, uh, idea of what the weather is going to be like in your layover spots. At least that's what I use it for. They have a lot of good tools on this weather underground site, including Nexrad radar and such. So what are your favorite weather tools, guys? Well, it doesn't make much difference to me. I'm not going to land for like eight hours. That's true. So it's always changed. Yeah. <laughs> I find TAFs are quite good. Yeah. Well, old school. <laughs> that's for sure. But uh yeah, I look at those as well. Those are our official uh, weather products that we uh, are required to have and to review. Uh, but this is just what I just mentioned were things just to enhance my dark skies. Knowledge. Is dark sky favorite. is wonderful. I, I I agree. There's a it's a great app and, for your phone, and it, it's particularly good at uh, sort of the next hour. Uh, you know, are you going to be able to finish this uh, game of lawn bowls, mm-hmm. or is the rain going to hit you before you? And I get done. And by the way, uh, that is a great app for your phone and tablet. And if you want the web version of Dark Sky, it is actually, I'm trying to find it, forecast.io. And that, that is where they get the data. Oh, is that right? Okay. Forecast. It is usually io. very accurate. I mean, mm-hmm. like, you know, if there's a rain shower coming, it'll say it'll arrive in nine minutes. Or as accurate as pretty... meteorologists can be. <laughs> Which is, yeah, not very accurate at all. 
But no, they're getting it from radar data, so they can usually watch it progress and, mm. and you know, see when it, what it's going to hit and when it's going to hit. That's why it's very good for short-term stuff. Yeah. So, you know, like when I'm in the, the hotel van heading to the airport, I will, uh, I'm not going to uh, really give them a, a big kudos, but uh, for a high-level uh, overview of, of the radar, a lot of times I'll use the Weather Channel uh, app, which a lot of people don't like, but I just use it for a high-level overview when when we're talking about uh, storms within the vicinity um i use this app called my radar oh yeah uh, which is very very good that's a great for, uh, app yes yeah great app for using for local um radar and giving you a really good picture of course officially we have to use the company uh, derived information through the computer that's not always easily accessible in the flight deck so that's why i'll I'll you know use my dispatcher, which is what I uh, find very helpful, especially when I'm trying to get a high level um, uh, picture because we've got uh, our own meteorology department. So that's one of the things that I like to refer to. You know, uh, Nick, you mentioned TAFs. Uh, we generate our own uh, TAFs, and they tend to be uh, a lot more accurate, I think, than than the National Weather Service. So, not that I'm touting our our, our department, but they do an excellent job of. Of giving us a lot of information. I thought the TAFs were a government product. What's that? The the terminal area forecasts are uh, NOAA. The uh, the turbulence plots, the TPs, are our product. Uh, actually, TAFs are uh, our national, uh, our uh, NOAA, but also the company that's put them out. Hmm. Like they have Metro. When it says Metro, it's 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 the company product. Okay. So. Well, I don't know. They, I disagree. <laughs> well, for the, for, the, the, for the hubs, they have they they don't do them from all, all of them, but for the hubs, they do do their own forecast. Okay. Oh, but they're not called TAFs. Yeah, they're not called TAFs. Okay, they, gotcha. It will say. I think it says Metro. I think okay. that's what it gotcha. says. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay. So and, and we'll and they'll be in the comments. will say you know which meteorologist within the company has produced that product. So it's uh, okay. when I worked in the uh, OCC. Uh, uh-huh. That's uh, we were directly involved with those guys. They're right behind where I sat. Interesting. Yeah. Hey, um, my radar, by the way, uh, one of the the best parts. You have your own radar. Yeah, yeah, I have my own oh, radar. Personal. You have. No, you it, have everything. The app is called My Radar. M Y A R A D A R. By the way, the thing I really love most about the My Radar app is the the name of the company that produces it. Oh, very good. Isn't that? Lovely. Our own Atronomatic or something like that. <laughs> yeah. That's cool. Uh, yeah. Um, and here is a. Uh, uh, Atronomatic. Who's Ron? I don't know. Uh, the world's most popular weather radar app. Is it actually worldwide or is it worldwide in America? I don't know. Don't know. But that's it's, a good it's, it's very good you, i don't know if it works for you high guys level, high level looking and stuff but it's so detailed it takes it usually takes a little longer to load so if i'm just looking for a quick overview that's why i'll use the weather channel because mm-hmm. it's not very accurate and it's it gives you at least a high yeah. level view of everything i'm it's not a big fan of the weather channel actually i'm not either just just yeah. just for the uh, i mean i like their tv program you know i like you know turning that on in the room or whatever but as far as their internet products ugh. Don't like them. Of course, Funny I enough, think weather underground. My, my, and, yeah. uh, my, my airline manufacturer gives me my own radar. And you get to carry it with you? Yeah. 
airplane. Yes. <laughs> but I've got two of them. How about that? I can't yeah, really claim it's that. my radar, though, because it's really belongs to the airplane and the airline. But, you know, okay. So is it called My Radar Weather Radar? No, just called My Radar App. M Y R A D A R. My Radar. Okay. Anyway. Must be. Okay, thanks. Yeah. So there you go, Jason. Hope that helped. And thanks for discovering our show. And we hope to hear from more from you in the future. And with that, I think now is a good time to play this week's installment of the very, very popular part of our show. The favorite, actually. Plain Tales. The Old Pilot's Plain Tales. Pie in the Sky. One of the very few genuine SC-5A fighters left in the world has been dangling from the rafters of the Science Museum in London since 1939. But a fighter with no guns and a civilian livery always has a tale to tell. In the days immediately before World War I, an accidental discovery was made. If low-viscosity oil inadvertently found its way into a hot exhaust, it would vaporise, creating a vast and dense cloud of white smoke without any real detriment to the engine. In these early days of flight, any such discovery was investigated for its possible usefulness in war. In this case, smoke signals to ground troops or a defensive fog to confuse attackers was thought possible. An aspiring aviation engineer at the time was one John Clifford Savage. Born in 1891 and apprenticed to Claude Graham White in 1909, Savage had a flair for the theatrical and broke off his engineering career in order to become the manager and agent to B.C. Hux, the first Englishman to loop the loop. It was not until the early days of peace that the idea of making smoke trails was revived. During the war, Savage had been a lieutenant in the Royal Naval Flying Service, rising to become a major in the newly formed Royal Air Force. But with the onset of peace, he was wondering what to do with his future. He tried his hand at being a journalist, writing for the Flight magazine under the nom de plume oh so blue, but that lacked a certain je ne sais quoi. By 1921, Mad Jack Savage had revisited the idea of producing smoke and experimented with making first shapes and then letters in the air and the art of skywriting was born. There is some small controversy as to whether Jack was the very first skywriter, since a certain American aviator was thought to have produced some airborne writing back in 1915 during the marvellous Panama Pacific International Exposition in San Francisco, California. The exposition was a huge affair, designed to showcase all that was best in the United States. 
The centrepiece was the Tower of Jewels, which rose to 435 feet and was constructed from thousands of glass Nova gems, which sparkled during the day and were illuminated by over 50 powerful searchlights at night. There were displays of agriculture, art, manufacture, food education, industry and transport, to name just a few. Lincoln Beachy, a pioneer American aviator and barnstormer who had become famous and wealthy from his flying exhibitions, was due to put on a display, but sadly, in front of a crowd of 250,000, his aircraft broke up during a loop and he was killed in the subsequent crash. In his place, an airman called Art Smith took to the air and after a series of breathtaking stunts was credited with writing Good Night with fireworks attached to his wings at the conclusion of his displays. However, sadly there is little or no mention of it in any histories written about him. Back in the United Kingdom, the entrepreneurial Jack Savage had been in search of aircraft fit for the job of skywriting, and he settled on the Royal Aircraft Factory SE-5A. This was not the most agile fighter of the war, but unlike the Sopwith Camel, it had a Wolseley Viper V8 engine that was easy to fix and which had a sizable pair of exhaust pipes. In addition, the aircraft were in plentiful supply. More than 2,500 of them had been sitting around since the end of the war and they were cheap and easy to buy. Savage grabbed 33 of these unwanted fighters and converted them into bespoke skywriting aircraft at his Hendon premises. When selling his services in later years, Savage declared that, as a wartime fighter, the SE-5A was considerably stronger than was needed to endure the stresses of skywriting. He modified the machines by extending the exhaust pipes through a hole cut in the tail, which, suitably lagged with asbestos, acted as the nib for Savage's aerial pen, and rechristened the aircraft the Savage Woolsey SE-5A. The smoke-generating oil was stored in front of the cockpit where the machine gun previously sat, and was delivered by a new control on the instrument panel, whilst the pilot's headrest was removed in order to grant a better rearward view. Finally, the old drab camouflage of dark olive and cream linen was replaced by an all-over silver finish. Savage's inventiveness caused a sensation when his skywriting SE-5A made its very first public debut at the 1922 Epsom Derby. A bumper crowd for one of the biggest racing weekends of the year were enthralled as the silver speck 10,000 feet above them spelt out Daily Mail in vast white letters, which the newspaper later claimed was the greatest single development in outdoor advertising, and that Everyone within the area of 100 square miles, and there were millions, gazed spellbound at this fascinating sight. 
It was certainly a hit with the public, and the advertisers as well. Among those in the VIP enclosure at Epsom were none other than the leading novelist of the day, Virginia Woolf, who used a description of the occasion in her very next book. Flushed with success, Savage shipped one of his aircraft to the USA, with another ex-RAF pilot, Cyril Turner at the controls, Savage's SE-5A carefully wrote, Hello, USA, in the sky above New York. The following day, the silver speck reappeared, writing, Call Vanderbilt 7100. The number put potential advertisers through to the hotel where Savage was staying, and the demand for his $1,000 service was insatiable. The New York Times wrote that, hovering in his plane over Times Square and other points over the city, he aroused the curiosity of many by smoke casting a telephone number, asking those who could read to call up. The number was that of a hotel whose press agent promptly issued a statement that 47,000 calls of inquiry had been received. Savage's business thrived on both sides of the Atlantic. His 33 fighter aircraft were equipped with radios so he could give personal instructions to the men at the controls while they laboured away. The biggest European success for Savage's skywriters came in 1928 when he was employed to promote the Purcell brand of detergents. The response was swift and impressive. The Purcell script stood a heroic one mile tall and stretched a full four miles across the sky. Some 45 million cubic feet of smoke had to be generated in order to make the letters. The pilots also had to fly their route in reverse, no easy task, so that it could be read from below, something that took many rehearsals of the complex manoeuvres until they became second nature. The campaign was such a success that for decades many European countries would call a cloudless sky a Purcell sky. From the North Sea to the Mediterranean, whenever there was a sunny afternoon, people would glance up to see if a flashing silver dot would appear and make its magical message above them. Although his fleet of SE-5As grew tired, Savage stayed in business until 1939, but one by one the old fighters were pensioned off, usually going to breakers' yards, but not always. In 1934, two of his aircraft registered Gulf Echo Bravo India Alpha and Gulf Echo Bravo India Charlie went to new homes and they can now be seen resplendent in their wartime specifications in the RAF Museum Hendon and the Shuttleworth Collection at Old Warden. By the 1st of June 1939, only one aircraft was left in Savage's keeping. He sat down with one of his last sheets of headed paper and wrote a note to the Science Museum in South Kensington. Dear Sir, I have one genuine wartime SE-5A aeroplane left out of a considerable number I used to own. 
I cannot remember whether the museum has a specimen of this really rather historic type of aeroplane, and if it has not, I will be only too pleased to present the museum the machine to which I have referred above. Yours faithfully, J. C. Savage. This kind offer was, of course, accepted, and so Golf Echo Bravo India Bravo has been preserved intact, not only as an example of this legendary fighter of World War I, but also as an icon of the advertising industry. As for Major Savage, he had already added another invention to his CV, the crop-spraying aeroplane, which found tremendous use in the USA and Australia in particular. As the Second World War approached, he used his engineering knowledge to found Savage and Parsons Limited, which developed an array of sound locators and searchlights, including the Lee Light anti-submarine technology, which was to prove vital in World War II. Jack Savage died in September 1945, but he left a remarkable legacy to the world of aviation. Of the six genuine SE-5A aircraft still in existence, three are ex-Savage machines. And while the silver example which hangs in the Science Museum may not be the first thing to catch one's eye, it's certainly worth a second look. Of course, the world of skywriting didn't die with Jack Savage. Many major companies saw messages in the sky as a great way to reach an audience of thousands. So brands like Ford, Chrysler and Lucky Strike Tobacco were having their names emblazoned across the skies of America. Television soon eclipsed the reach of the skywriters, but it remained an important way to attract an audience to events such as air shows and festivals, but the skills required to make legible words using a single aircraft were considerable. Much planning had to go into each letter, and it had to be flown with great precision and skill, turning the smoke on and off with very precise timing, and the pilot required superb spatial awareness, not something that was easily found amongst those willing to take on such a job. The answer was a new form of writing that those of you old enough to remember how a dot matrix printer works will easily understand. The modern equivalent of the aerobatic manoeuvres and tight turns of the skywriters is to fly straight and level and let a computer do the job. Skytyping uses the same basic equipment, but with a fleet of at least five aircraft flying in close formation. The letters are formed by each aircraft delivering a single puff of smoke at a precise point as calculated by the computer with each aircraft delivering their dots in perfect synchronicity. The letters, words and even entire sentences are formed. It's even possible to alter the prose almost immediately as events change, like a huge version of the ticker tape display in Times Square. It can be quite costly to pay for a formation of five aircraft to deliver your message, so a considerably cheaper version is the well-known flying banner. 
I say well-known as there are many, many pilots sitting proudly in the seats of airliners all over the world who built their hours to gain that treasured Airline Transport Pilot Certificate by droning up and down the beaches of Florida, pulling an advertising banner for Joe's Diner or Slick Sam's Second-Hand Car Sale. Other flying advertisements are attached to helicopters and even aerostats, blimps or airships depending on their construction, which can not only carry a huge logo painted on the side, hands up who hasn't seen the Goodyear blimp, but can also carry vast electronic boards which can flash up messages at will. Hot air balloons have been made in a variety of forms, like two enormous cartoon bees to advertise a furniture removal firm in Australia, and a vast pair of flying underpants emblazoned with paddy power, just to name two. Other technologies available for the discerning advertiser, including flogos. These are made from a soapy bubble foam, constructed from water and helium plus magic ingredients and pressed into the shape of a letter or logo and then pumped into the sky to spell out words or just display a shape. More recently, quadcopter drones bearing bright lights were used to create complex coordinated displays in what has been described as flocking or swarming behaviour. In 2018, 1,218 drones were used in a performance during the opening of the Winter Olympics in South Korea, and the same technology was used to put an enormous W into the sky over Los Angeles to mark the release of the Wonder Woman movie. Perhaps the oldest type of flying advert still used to this day are kites. This stretches back to ancient China's fabled use of kites to send political or military messages and religious celebration symbols. In contrast, possibly the most modern is the use of flight tracking software, such as Flight Tracker and Flight Radar 24, other applications are available, which pilots have used to draw virtual messages in the sky, the results of which are then posted onto social media. Many have spelt out words, one recently being spring, with a picture of a tulip, Another pilot, presumably building hours, wrote, I'm bored, and added a couple of graffiti images more often found on toilet doors, something that the Navy had already done with contrails. Out of interest, smiley faces, hearts, political messages, etc. have all littered the skies over the world, except those of the United Kingdom. Skywriting in the United Kingdom has apparently been illegal since the 1930s, when a law was passed which prevented aerial advertising in UK airspace. It was enacted following the aerial dropping of fascist propaganda leaflets over London during World War II. Although the Civil Aviation Authority and the Department of Trade have now approved the activity, the law has yet to be ratified by Parliament. Whatever message you may want to write in the sky, it can be a great way to attract attention.
Not all have gone well, though. Marriage proposals have been made with skywriting. Some followed a few days later with the emphatic message, No. One skywriter with a sense of humour wrote, How do I land? With another on the same theme writing, O-S-H-I, before the trail wriggled earthwards and disappeared. Someone with a message to send wrote, Go F, I can't really finish that word, but he did, yourself. One unintentional crudity occurred when Happy Birthday, Clint, written in capital letters, said something completely different when the L and the I of Clint sadly merged into a single letter. Skywriting has reached the record books as well. In 2012 over San Francisco, and again in 2014 over Austin, Texas, the largest piece of artwork ever created was visible. It was the mathematical constant defined as the ratio of a circle's circumference to its diameter, calculated to 1,000 decimal places. Each number was a quarter of a mile high, and the string of numbers was produced in a huge loop 100 miles long. It was, of course, pie in the sky. Another wonderful plain tale by the old pilot, the old comradian, Captain Nick. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Another fantastic uh, job. Absolutely agree. <laughs> Cheers. I thought we needed something with a slightly lighter subject. Uh, yes, you are <laughs> absolutely correct, sir. And, you know, you mentioned uh, skywriting, and the, one of the last things you were talking about is uh, flight tracking software and that kind of thing. Well, yep. one of our APG community members and a gentleman who hosts his own podcast, Flying and Life, we know him as Dispatcher Mike. Uh, he went up in his newly repaired um Let's see, Beechcraft Musketeer, uh, November 2324 Lima, I believe. And he, uh, to mark the beginning of this season, spring, went up and doodled a beautiful flower and wrote out in cursive, spring. And that well, is that the reason. That was the one I was referring to. I, I uh, didn't know it was Mike, though. So my apologies, Mike, for not including... Uh, you as the author. Oh, you didn't know the, that was Mike's? Okay. No, I didn't. I saw it and I thought, and it just flicked through my, you know, mm -hmm. Twitter thing. And I went, oh, look, that's good. Someone spelt spring. Well, I didn't really tweak uh, that Mike had done it. Yeah. Well done, sir. You can see uh, Noonan. That's where the airplane is based. And uh, he takes off. So and, that's spring. And that's a Venus flytrap on top, is it? Looks like it. Yeah. And <laughs> I'm only joking. It looks very good. Dana, you, do you understand now why I have that on there? Yes, I now do. Yes. <laughs> okay. Understood. Very good. So the people watching the video can see the uh, doodle. We'll put that in the show notes as well, if Great I remember. Job. It must take a lot of planning to do one of those. I think so. I'm not sure exactly. how. Maybe he can uh, tell us sometime how, how he does that. He must have some kind of a program that he uses to come up with the uh, the plots, whatever. Excellent. Yeah. I mean, I imagine you could you know, plot it using GPS. Mm -hmm. Oh, I'm sure it's yeah. GPS related somehow. 
Anyway, I, I figured there must be some enterprising person out there that has some kind of a of, of an app built specifically for making sky doodles or whatever you call them. I don't know. Maybe not. Maybe, hey, there's an opportunity for somebody out there. There you go. I'm okay. Um, let's see. So thanks again, uh, Captain Nick, for the uplifting uh, story of skywriting. Unless you've just made a marriage proposal and your fiance said no. Yeah, <laughs> then or maybe not so fiance. uplifting. That would be bad. <laughs> that would be very bad. <laughs> That'll right. be a that'll be a wow moment. Wow, that would. Yeah, we. I guess that's time for. Wow, there we go. Um, let's get back to our long list of Facebook items. Facebook feedback. I I, I see FB in my head, and I say Facebook. Wow, that's bad. Uh, you've been programmed. I know. Facebook. All right, Steve writes in um, a technical question, if I may. A few weeks ago, I flew KLM from Mexico City to Amsterdam on a 747-400, Nick's favorite aircraft type. Actually, I think Nick does like the uh, Oh, I love them. Yes, absolutely. As a regular long-haul flyer on 787s and A350s. Come on, you can, you can hold it in. I have to say, it felt like stepping onto a museum exhibit when I boarded. Ugh. Well, that's All right, why Steve. they're so nice. Uh, Liz, anytime you get anything else in the future from Steve, go ahead and just put it, delete it. Uh, things seemed to be going smoothly, and we pushed back on time, and I could hear the engine starting up and so on. Great. Then, after a few minutes of waiting, the captain came on the PA to say that they were having problems starting one of the engines and were troubleshooting. A few minutes later, we'd taxied back to the gate, and some engineers came on board. At this point, I was rapidly losing faith I would make my connection in Amsterdam. A few minutes later, the captain announced that they were going to try a different method to start the problematic engine, but it ne- but needed to do this on the stand, which would take a few more minutes to organize. By the way, the other engines were still running at this point. After another short wait, I heard the distinctive sound of the engine spooling up. The captain came back on the PA to announce all was well. They just needed the engineer to sign off the paperwork, and then we would be on our way. I was impressed with how they coordinated with the engineers to solve the problem fast. I know you guys have never flown the 747, and there could be many reasons for this problem, but based on your experience, what do you think might have been the problem, and what could have been the alternative method used to start the engine on stand to solve the problem? Thanks, as always, for your great work, it's great to be part of the APG community. Cheers, Steve Hurst. And I know that every single one of us airline pilots have the answer, or at least I know for sure what it was. Well, I, I think I know what it was. I think we I all think know. I know what it is. Manual start valve. You got yeah. it. So, ding, 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 ding. Yep. I was, I was going to say they, they lost the key to the clockwork. That could have been it as well. Yeah, the, 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 the air start valve was my other answer. Yes, yes. But I'm thinking the, well, okay. Then that kind of has something to do with the, the, the start. Yeah. The, the manual. Yeah. The start valve. It was just yeah. the sound yeah. valve, the auto function or the ability to open it up uh, remotely from the flight deck was probably incapacitated and thus maintenance personnel had to go out there and manually open up the start valve and then manually close it. Right. Normally, it's an electronic thing, I believe, um, yes. that uh, occurs, and the valve opens up, and the air flows into the engine to get it spinning. And in this case, that function wasn't 
um, you know, working. And so I think every airplane that I've flown has the ability to use a manual, to activate the valve manually. And it usually involves finding the panel on the cowling of the engine. You, it's like a specific, you don't have to normally raise the entire cowling of the uh, engines, just like a small, like a, where you'd open up the door for your, for your petrol cap or your gas cap, as we say in, in the U.S., and uh, open that thing, door open and usually involves putting some kind of a wrench or, or some kind of a tool in there and inserting it in and turning it a quarter of a turn or a half a turn or whatever. And that, that manually opens the valve. The air is directed into the engine from the pneumatic system. The uh, engine spins, it starts up, and then the mechanic or the engineer uh, manually uh, reverses the procedure and closes the valve. And you're good to go. And the paperwork required is something because, you know, you had to annotate that you used the manual start method, the start valve method to start the engine. And uh, there you have it. Well, and, and, the, and the question may come up, well, what happens if you have an in-flight shutdown? You had to restart that engine and you don't actually need to have air to go to the engine as long as it's not damaged because when you are flying through the air, it will be free spooling. So yeah. you wouldn't actually need to add air to uh, start the engine in flight. Right. Yeah. We, we do a, call it a windmill start. Now, do you yep. guys have uh, an intercom point on your engines so that you can speak to the man with the tool, the, with the big long tool? We, ooh, yeah, we know that guy. <laughs> well, I'm he's assuming gonna, you need a big long, long tool because your <laughs> engines are well above the engineer's head. No, they'll put a, um, they usually have like a platform that they raise up uh, to stand on. Um, ah, okay. Or or sometimes or a ladder if they don't have the platform to uh, stand or like a golf cart or whatever back there. But uh, yes, we do. Um, I've seen it done that way. I've also seen it done uh, with uh, like cell phones um, and like or, or not cell phones, but walkie talkies. Um, right. One back in the back and the mechanic up in the front. Um, okay, that sort so of. So you you don't have the man with the message in the cleft stick. The passing it up to the flight deck and you pull no. it off and read it. No? Okay. No. Or actually, um, on the uh, Mad Dog, we use smoke signals sometimes. Oh, well, yeah, I've, I've seen Mad Dogs do that, actually, <laughs> where you must be sending lots of messages. We send lots of messages, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so, Steve, there you go. There's your answer. That was a manual start valve malfunction, I'm yeah. sure. Okay. Uh, let's see. Dana, you said you're going to have to go pretty soon, huh? Yeah, um, pretty tightly scheduled day today. Okay, uh, all the way through, including uh, into tomorrow morning. Okay. Well, do you want to say goodbye now, and, and then you can just leave whenever you need to? Is that if that's good with you? I, yeah. I appreciate that. Sure. And I, I know, and I feel bad because you guys adjusted the schedule so that I could be here today. But oh, that's okay. We got you for most of the show. We're getting yeah, most of getting it, close to the end anyway. Left anyway. So yeah, yeah. No, thank you guys, and great to see everybody again. And. We'll see you next time. All right. Have a great day uh, out there riding that motorcycle and all the other stuff that you're going to do. We're going to a big wings festival, then a uh, the trivia night dinner uh, banquet, then a buddy's birthday party. So that's why I said I'm, I'm, I have a tightly scheduled day today. All right. Well, have fun, man. Yeah, have a good time. Good to see you. Great seeing you. Hey, Nick, feel better, my friend. Cheers. Cheers. All right. Uh, Glaucus, Glaucus sent uh, an article about quiet supersonic boom uh hope 
everybody's well. I'm just listening to episode 354, and I hope the crew had a great time in Miami. Yes, we did. Special mention to Liz, and thanks for her fantastic work. Yes, it, it can't be said enough. Looking towards the future, see below a link to an article re- regarding the developments on the supersonic technology and its effect on the population. The most common and less popular is the sonic boom. Do you think supersonic travel will again become a reality, both from a technical and an economical perspective? Looking forward to hearing your views. Keep the blue side up and enjoy the end of winter. Uh, We are at the tail end of our summer and looking forward to some cool weather. Lastly, if any of the APG community members are keen to organize a meetup in Sydney, please let me know. Okay, so hey, if you're out there listening, you're in the Sydney area, you want to organize an APG meetup, contact me. And just uh, make it to meetup at uh, airlinepilotguy.com. I believe that's a valid email address. If not, uh, jeff at uh, airlinepilotguy.com. And uh, I'll send all correspondence to Glaucus. That'd be a a, a great thing, I think. Anyway, the uh, article that he references, um, the headline, "Proposed, Proposed Passenger Jet Could Reach Supersonic Speeds. And it talks about... Uh, NASA's research in this, and this article really deals with um, uh, something that they did with photography, and they says, as part of its research, NASA has captured unprecedented photos. It says, are the first images of the interaction of shockwaves from two supersonic aircraft in flight. The pictures show two T-38 supersonic jetliners no, they're yeah, not jetliners. Jet <laughs> <laughs> I flew with a T-38, and it's definitely not a jetliner. Um, that's funny. How many passengers did you carry? Um, none. <laughs> Just two pilots, or one pilot. Uh, anyway, two T-38 supersonic jets tearing through the atmosphere and creating sonic shockwaves. Thanks to some heavy-duty upgrades to their camera technology, NASA scientists could hardly believe what they saw when the images were developed. We never dreamt that it would be this clear, this beautiful, said J.T. Hynek of NASA's Ames Research Center in a statement. Shockwaves are created by aircraft flying faster than the speed of sound. The shockwaves produced by aircraft merge together as they travel through the atmosphere and are responsible for what is heard on the ground as a loud sonic boom. Ultimately, NASA wants to design a supersonic aircraft that rumbles rather than booms when it crashes through the sound barrier. Uh, So anyway, check out the article that he referenced and uh, some beautiful um, enhanced photography. Wouldn't you uh, agree, uh, Captain Nick? Yeah, it does. It really allows you to visualize what's happening and is normally invisible. I mean, you can actually see your shockwave when you're supersonic because it has a slight change in refractive index. And if the light is right, you can, a bit like looking at a stick you've pushed into some water, you know, the stick appears to change angle, it bends. Mm. Uh, In the same way, when you, in the right conditions, you can see uh, light uh, move, uh, change through the shockwave. But this is a perfect uh, illustration of, of how they form, where they form, what they look like, how far they spread out. And, of course, because they've been done in beautiful Technicolor, mm-hmm. it does look very impressive. And also how they interact with the, uh, so as mentioned in the article, the two T-38, T-38 jetliners uh, are traveling very close <laughs> to each other. And uh, it's interesting to see how the shockwave on the lead uh, aircraft interacts with the shockwave of the 
trailing uh, jet. And so, yeah, very uh, much so. I mean, this these these type of photographs have been around since before uh, aircraft went supersonic because there were supersonic um, wind tunnels, uh, and um, they were able to photograph uh, the effects uh, through special uh, spectrographic cameras, uh, what the shot waves looked like. But this is the first time I've ever seen uh, images of shot waves in of an aircraft in flight. I think it's fabulous. Yeah, that's very cool. Very cool. Again, we'll have yeah. that in the show notes. Thanks, Glaucus. And hopefully uh, those of you listening in the Sydney area will get together. And uh, if you do, we'll love, we'd love to hear about it. Um, you know, Photos and audio, please. Boom. Um, yes. Let's That's see. what it sounds like. Oh, that what it sound like? Uh, so what is it going to sound like if it's just a rumble, a sonic rumble? Boom. Yeah, well, I'm trying to work out how they're going to turn boom into a rumble. I don't know. I, I, neither I, do I. <laughs> but they're going to have to do that because that is the really the biggest drawback, I think, to supersonic flight, especially over populated areas. Yep. We'll see. Sure. And do we think if it's it's going to happen? I, I think it's got a good chance. Uh, a lot of companies are sinking a lot of money into it, so I would imagine that it's uh, got a fighting chance. Yep. Uh, Robert uh, from Marietta, or as we say, Mayretta, uh, writes in, Hi guys, uh, when do pilots start thinking about what jet to train on next when these retirement decisions hit the news? Or do unions drive these decisions some? In IT, where I work, it's usually trying to foresee that a product is dying or you've lost your job and you're forced to regroup where you can. Uh, hope everybody's doing well. Yeah, so, you know, I think we've talked about it a few times on the show where at least, well, I guess it depends on the airline, really. But uh, most of the big legacy carriers here in the U.S., um, and we talked about it toward the beginning of the show in the intro when Dana was talking about where he might move and such. And Basically, what they'll do is they'll put out a, at least we call it an, an advance entitlement or surplus bid. And they're basically saying, okay, here's the deal. We're going to get rid of, we're going to lop 240 captains off the Mad Dog category in Atlanta. And so, because, you know, we're retiring airplanes, we have this many positions available and if, and which is a surplus if you are retiring airplanes. And so, you know, we have too many of these positions we're getting rid of them so if you're out there and you think you might be vulnerable to getting displaced or taken off in that position uh, make sure that you have your preferences your bidding preferences in order because if you are involuntarily displaced uh, we'll try to give you what you're asking us to give you if you have the seniority so it, it has all to do with seniority and everything else it's not like uh, they'll just take the people that are on this airplane and train them on a different airplane because, you know, one pilot may go over here. Like Dana might fly the 757, 767 as a first officer, or he might fly the Airbus uh, 320 series as a first officer. Uh, another one in Dana seniority may decide to, you know, uh, commute to New York so he can continue to fly as a captain. You know, it just depends. It's not like all these pilots boom, you're going to go now fly this airplane and you're going to train on this one. So it's kind of an individual thing based on your seniority. And uh, the only part that the unions play in this is that they're the ones that come up with the procedure um, for this to happen. And it's all done in contract negotiations. And when a contract is finalized, that's the, the way you 
follow all the procedures and uh, such. And such. I'm using that a lot for some reason, this episode. The article that um, Robert is referring to, uh, I love the headline. I love it. It kind of goes along with the uh, MD-88 rap that we heard earlier today. Delta CEO Ed Bastian is retiring ancient jets, adding free Wi-Fi to win over customers. Andrew, Andrew Barry from Barons.com. I do not like you. They're not ancient <laughs> jets. Okay. Anyway. Yep. Yes, sir. You want to say anything regarding no, my ancient jet? No, okay, I thank did. No, I want, I want to make sure I get my money this week for change. <laughs> you can get your paycheck. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, Good luck with that. Um, <laughs> let's see. Uh, eight. First Officer Corey. Corey Cave. Yeah. All right. Uh, First Officer Corey Cave here, formerly pipeline pilot guy. It's been a while since my last feedback, but by, but, by, but while listening to your discussion about the Embraer 145 landing in Maine on episode 365, I figured I could give some quick information about the 145's approach capabilities. In the 145, coupled RNAV approaches are unable to follow the vertical guidance unless by manual means, either by following the FPA, which I think means flight path angle. That's right. Through vertical speed mode on the FGC flight guidance guidance computer. computer. Okay. Or by I don't know. I'm guessing on that one. Yeah, I think you're right. Or by hand flying. Also, the 145 has the ability to to do CAT 2 approaches as well. Captain Dana flew the Embraer 120 Brasilia, I believe, which a lot say is the same fuselage used for the 145, just with the addition of tail-mounted turbofan engines. And they took the propeller engines off the uh, wings. <laughs> oh, it didn't, wasn't a four-engine airplane. Oh, well, that, wouldn't that have been cool, huh? Two, two turning, two burning. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for the show and big updates soon to come. Ooh, that's good Ooh. to hear, Corey. Oh, interesting. Good to hear from you. Um, I wait with bated breath. Yeah, I didn't think that, uh, that Dana flew the uh, Embraer 145. Captain Al did, though. Is he still in our chat room? Yeah. I think he is. Uh, yes, he is. Okay. Anyway, he had good things to say about it. Captain Al, what's FGC mean, please? Yeah, I'm sure you're right, though. Flight guidance computer. You pilots out there with all your stupid acronyms. We can't keep up with these all darn right. things. Oh, yep. Apparently we're right. Yes, very good. Ooh, not as much lag as we used to have. And uh, that was a pretty quick answer. Okay. Uh, oh, speaking of Captain Al, Derek writes in and with wind. <laughs> Um, sorry, Al. Poor Ali's going to get a we couldn't help it. <laughs> We just can't help ourselves. Uh, yeah. Hi, Captain Jeff, Dr. Steph, Captain Nick, Captain Dana, and Liz. My first feedback since Fambra. Last Sunday, the 10th of March, I was out early walking my daughter's dog. Yes, I have been lumbered. What does that mean? I don't know what that term means. Lumbered. What it means? Uh, you've been lumbered with a task. You've been given a task you weren't really wanting to do. Okay. Very good. Actually, she was working, so no real complaints. Anyway, I didn't realize that night we had horrific, horrific weather, and I was catching the tail end of a storm. It was still extremely windy, but now sunny with beautiful clear skies. I live in the county of Sussex, not too far from Gatwick. Nick will know. Normally, the planes are descending or stacking above my area, approximately 6,000 feet. Several planes flew overhead really low. I'm guessing about 2,000 feet. 
I could see the markings so clearly beautiful. I could see the markings so clearly beautiful view of a Virgin Jumbo and a Dreamliner. Oh, it was the Jumbo's first flight. Uh, being an <laughs> aviation enthusiast, I do know the aircraft patterns in the area, but I've never seen them so low. Obviously, at higher altitudes, this varies with conditions. So is this normal? Do aircraft sometimes descend to a lower altitude to avoid certain conditions this close to the airport? Is this a normal procedure? Have any of you ever had to descend and hold lower to avoid extreme wind conditions? And I'm talking weather wind, exclamation point. Thanks, guys, for the continuous great shows, Derek. What do you think, Nick? Well, uh, the bottom of a stack is defined. So when you're uh, in, in a, uh, a holding pattern, you may not go below a certain altitude, and that's written on your uh, charts. Uh, so, no, he they won't be in the holding pattern. Uh, just as, uh, you know, um, to find try and find it out from the horse's mouth, I reached out to our good friend Adam Spink, who is our go-to man with any of these kind of questions. So uh, Adam replied to me just uh, only an hour or two ago and said, uh, at a guess, I say he was seeing aircraft following missed approaches due to the weather. Uh, if he can let us know the date and time, I could use Flight Radar 24 to have a look at the aircraft in question. But uh, what um, uh, we basically went back and forth a little bit, and I said, yeah, that sounds a perfectly likely explanation. So, uh, missed approach, obviously, if you've got bad weather and you've had to do a, a missed approach, you usually level off uh, fairly low initially. The Heathrow uh, missed approach, for example, initially levels off at only 2,000 feet. Uh, I'm not certain what the Gatwick ones are. I don't usually operate out of Gatwick. But it will be below the normal arrival patterns uh, so that you deconflict. Uh, and that's exactly probably what you would have seen uh, aircraft in the missed approach uh, being repositioned to have another go, and 2,000 feet would not be an unusual altitude for them, certainly initially. So basically, wind did have something to do with it, not what he was thinking, but more to do with go-arounds, right? Oh, very good. Coming down. You can always go around. All right. Always have fun playing that when we can. And uh, yeah, very good explanation. Thank you, Nick. And thank you, Adam, for your input. We always appreciate it. Yeah, he's a fine chap too. Uh, oh, well. he is. Very upstanding young man. Yes, young compared to me at least. Um, and Nick. Um, I'm going to jump over to 13. Um because we kind of referred to this, or you just did actually, two burning and two turning, or two turning, two uh, burning. Although yeah. you're referring really to what? Three turning and four burning? No, six, six turning, oh, four six. burning. Darn it, I can't count. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, referring to, of course, your um, plain tale, um, some more of our bombs are missing in episode 364. And, uh, Bill writes, Captain Nick's excellent plain tale, uh, piqued my interest in the 1955 movie Strategic Air Command, starring Jimmy Stewart and the Convair B-36 Peacemaker. 
The movie is available for free to Amazon Prime members, and I'm assuming that's probably just the U.S., and I highly recommend yeah. it to all aviation buffs. It includes excellent air-to-air footage of the B-36 Peacemaker. The movie showed so much, I wonder if it did not give away secrets to the Russians. Hmm. Well, there were some beautiful aerial shots. There's no doubt about it. And they took a lot of time uh, to to make that. And I love the fact that uh, they had an actor who was actually uh, in the Air Force and uh, a captain uh, of those aircraft who was playing the part. Brilliant. Yes. I'm going to have to... Jimmy Stone. I, you know, so, I don't. I, I think I've seen pieces. I'm not sure if I've seen the entire movie. So I'm gonna, and I am an Amazon Prime. It's not one of my favorite movies of that time. It does go on a bit, oh, uh, but it? the yeah, just a wee bit. But the uh, there are some fantastic bits, and it's worth watching just just to uh, see these fantastic airplane right. fire uh, and and to listen to the interactions of the crew and things. But, uh, you know, there, there are slightly better aviation movies out there. But if you're a bit of a buff like I am, you will definitely enjoy it because I enjoyed it. Well, he continues, uh, one of my favorite scenes showed the pulley system the crew used to go from the back front to the back of the B-36 in flight. Not only that, the movie includes excellent footage of the Boeing RB-47H Stratojet. The takeoff scene with the RB-47H is amazing as it fires its rocket system during takeoff. Other aircraft like the Boeing KC-97, Boeing 377, and DC-3 make a cameo, too. As a side note, the B-36, RB-47H, and KC-97 can all be seen on display in the United States Air Force Museum's Cold War display located in Dayton, Ohio. I can still remember standing under the massive B-36 with bomb bay doors open during a tour last summer. Excellent. That museum is on my bucket list. Mine too. One of these days, yeah, I want to get out and, well, let's go do it together sometime. You know what we should do? We should probably, instead of flying to Chicago to pick up the uh, RV, we should drive and we can just head up that way and then head over to uh, Chicago. Well, that would save me a lot of trouble because I'm that's the one bit of the journey I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do very easily. Let's plan on that, actually. I'm, I'm serious. Like, I've never oh, seen well. that museum either. Oh, well, I'd, I'll pay for the gas. That'd be great. All right. I'll Your have plenty gas of gas. <laughs> <laughs> well, we'll bring Al <laughs> in case we run out. Okay. Uh, so where was I before I skipped a forward to 13? I think I was um, on nine. Uh, this was kind of cute. I think some other aviation crazy. podcasts talk about the, talked about this as well. Um, this happened a little bit ago. Uh, this was from Mike Glover. Uh, you might enjoy this letter from a 10-year-old startup airline CEO to Qantas's CEO asking for advice and his reply. And uh, let's see, uh, the, the headline, please take me seriously, boy, 10, pleads when asking how to start an airline. Alex Jaco, 10, has spunk. Alan Joyce, the head of Qantas Airlines, likes spunk. The story starts um, with that's not a word we would use very commonly in the United yeah, Kingdom. Yeah, spunk uh, is it has different connotations, uh, different places. Um, but in this case, we mean like uh, what would uh, enthusiasm? Get up, get up and go. Get up yeah. and go. Yes. Uh, yeah. Well, I guess it could apply. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh no! Sorry. <laughs> The story starts when Alex, having reached the age of peak cuteness, penned a letter to Joyce about Oceana, the airline Alex intends to start someday. Just one problem. He doesn't actually know anything about starting an airline. 
So he went old school and wrote a letter. And then he goes on, we'll include this in the show notes, his very cute letter. There's a photo of it. Dear Mr. Alan Joyce A.O. and others, maybe. Um, I'm Alex Jeco. Is that right? Jeco? Yeah, a, a 10-year-old boy. Please take me seriously. <laughs> he already starts right off. Yeah, I'm 10, but don't don't stop reading. Take me seriously. <laughs> and I want to start an airline. I've already started some stuff like what type of planes I'll need, flight numbers, catering, and more. I'm the CEO of the airline, which, by the way, is called Oceana Express. I've also hired a CFO, a head of IT, a head of maintenance, a head of onboard services, and a head of... Uh, legal. Legal, okay. Well, that was cut off, I guess, as well, along with my friend Wolf, and they blurred that out because, you know, we, we don't want to, uh, uh, what's the word, implicate Wolf into this. He probably didn't sign his release. Uh, he's going to be the uh, <laughs> vice CEO. Yeah, he had he talked to legal, <laughs> apparently. Yes, yeah, sure. We are. Well, both- it could be Le- Lego. Lego, yeah. No, yeah, it could be for the Lego airplane. Lego. Yeah. Uh, we are both co-founders. I wanted to write to you because I wanted to ask you three things. Number one, I like working on my airline. Seeing as it is the school holidays, I have more time to work, but I don't have anything to do that I can think of. Do you have any ideas of what I can do? Seeing as you are the CEO of Qantas, I thought I'd ask you. (laughs) Number two, do you have any tips on starting an airline? I'd be very grateful to know what you'd have to say. (laughs) Yeah, don't. Uh, Number three, I'm thinking about, as you are, uh, an A350 for Sydney, Melbourne to London flights, seeing as it is a 25-hour flight. We are having a lot of trouble thinking about sleep. Do you have any advice? Hope to hear from you soon. Yours sincerely, Alex Jaco, CEO and co-founder of Oceana Express. Wouldn't it be funny if one of these days there really is an airline, Oceana yeah, Express? Yeah, actually, a, it's a good name, actually, Oceana, yeah. for any airline that goes across the ocean, yes. And then, of course, also in this article, a, um, a response from Alan Joyce of Qantas, and, uh, and it's very cute, and he takes him seriously. He's not, you know demeaning or condescending in any way and uh, we'll put the contents of that response that's the tease in the show notes so you can read it yourself thanks mike that was cute um quickly from greg maple lake minnesota i've been a longtime listener although i've fallen behind i used to have a three-hour round trip commute where i would listen to your episodes however i've been given work at home now and i'm having a hard time keeping up yeah that's understandable I was just wondering what happens to the pilots for airlines that fly the 737 MAX 8 right now. Do the airlines have something, some kind of insurance so that these pilots can get uh, keep getting paid a guaranteed income? Love your show. Thank you very much for doing this. And uh, thank you, Greg, for being part of our community and uh, participating by sending us in feedback. Um, so, you know, really the 737 MAX 8 doesn't make up, for most airlines, at least here in the U.S., a, a great portion of the um fleets and uh for instance i think the biggest uh, airline that uses them here in the u.s is southwest i think it uh, makes up about five percent of their fleet um and then smaller percentages for american and united and there is a system that um you know normally uh, i think all three of these airlines if you 
are checked out to fly the 737 MAX 8, you're also checked out to fly the 737 uh, NG or new generation jets. So they're just going to be flying their schedule like as normal. Just uh, there aren't going to be as many airplanes out there. Maybe the hours will will be reduced on them, but we do have something here uh, in seniority-based airlines uh, that are represented by union contracts called credit. So uh, you are guaranteed to make a certain amount or get a certain amount of credit hours credited per day per flying and for how many days you're gone from home, et cetera. So, uh, and if you're, um, and there's usually some kind of a provision for if something like this happens and you're not able to fly at all, uh, you're guaranteed to get a a certain minimum um, number of hours. And we, that's the way they pay us. You know, we we get hours of time, and then that translates to whatever the hour hourly rate is, and that's how our pay works. Unlike uh, Nick's airline, where it's all salary. And in your case, Nick, uh, if a, an aircraft model was taken out, it wouldn't really matter that much to you, right? Because you'd still get your salary. That's exactly right. And the small portion that's made up of flight pay, uh, there's a, a compensation uh, if you can't fly your hours and it's not down to uh, your choice. So, uh, yeah. Right. And, and most uh, most uh, decent airlines would do that. There are, of course, some airlines that would work on a more, you know, if you pitch up and fly, you get paid. If you don't fly, you don't get paid. They're the kind of airlines that both uh, Jeff and I um, I think are um, you know are not uh, ideal airlines, but unfortunately, some pilots starting their careers have to work those kind of conditions. They're they're never good. Uh, the sooner you can get out of an airline like that, the better, because you get a problem like this, or say an ash cloud that grounds your fleet. If you don't get paid, you end up in in pretty dire straits. So, right. Uh, if you're looking for a career, try and pick an airline that has. Uh, a, a good solid reputation for looking after its pilots when these sort of things happen. It's just another of those areas you need to consider before you pick your airline. Very, very true. Great advice. Um, wow. I, I think I'm going to skip 12 because that's kind of a long piece of feedback. Um, let's see. Tom Mandraki in Cincinnati, Ohio says, Greetings, APG royalty. Oh, he, he somehow knew that both mm. Nick and I were going to be here today and not yeah, the rest of the absolutely. crew. Yeah. Yeah. Just kidding. Um, Underlings. Yeah. Been a long time since Cheryl and I met you all at the Pittsburgh Air Show. Yeah, that was a great time. Question for the airline pilots. When you guys recent recertify or train on your aircraft, are you always on a full motion simulator or do you also use fixed base simulators? Also, are you required to simulate an entire flight or just a portion of one? I'd imagine the long haul guys would burn up a whole lot of sim time if they had to do an eight hour to 12 hour flight. (laughs) What exactly is required? (laughs) What exactly is required in those simulator sessions aside from any emergency situations they may throw at you? Hope to see you at Oshkosh this summer. Keep up the great work on the show. Your humble and obedient servant, Tom Mandrake. Thank you, Tom. Um, that is a quick, you know, when I was reading this, Nick, I have to be honest with you, because, you know, we kind of uh, alternate at Acme every nine months, the type of simulator training we're going to get. You know, one uh, series may be um, our uh, maneuvers validation um, 
period or recurrent training where we go and we do all the, you know, the, the uh, V1 cuts and all the different kind of recoveries from wind shear and, and uh, ground proximity warning system things and all kinds of things like that. The next one uh, alternate, alternatively would be the line oriented flying training where we go and actually do a flight from the moment you get in the cockpit with the paperwork you get and the communications that you would have with the flight attendant and the dispatcher and the tug driver and everything else in real time. And for us on the airplane that I fly, because we fly short to medium range type of flights, it's kind of realistic. We'll either go from, you know, let's say a place like John F. Kennedy in New York to Philadelphia, which is a relatively short flight, or we might do a, uh, uh, Portland, May, uh, Portland, Oregon to Seattle flight or, you know, vice versa. So, you know, it doesn't take, you know, hours and hours and hours to do a realistic flight. What about you? What, what do you do in that? I know, I know that you have line oriented flying training, don't you? Yeah, we do. Uh, and they do vary the scenarios. So it might be, uh, you've just been called out because, uh, uh, the aircraft that was inbound has been diverted, and a good example would be one was recently diverted. Instead of landing at Atlanta, it went to Birmingham, Alabama, and uh, you've been sent to Birmingham to pick up the aircraft because the crew are out of duty as, and you're to position it to Atlanta. Okay. So that's how they would artificially generate a short trip. Okay. Or they would generate a uh, a normal flight, uh, London to New York, that would normally take seven hours, and you are pretty certain that after about an hour or two, you, uh, you've done all the procedures, got it airborne, you're going to have an emergency sufficiently serious that you divert the aircraft um, or have a turn back on the Atlantic or whatever. But they do actually write in the scenarios, not every flight uh, will necessarily end with a landing. So you could have an in-flight emergency that uh, you deal with and you say, okay, that's fine, we've dealt with all that. Uh, we're now, and they made the decision to either carry on or divert. And if you decide to carry on and that's correct, then they'll, the guy will say, okay, that's fine. Uh, that, that scenario is over. And you move on to a different element of the, uh, the simulator. Because our loft flights, although the majority are taken up with a simulated flight, there's always a number of compulsory items that are always done, which usually include the bits that you might have done had you had to do a landing off your uh, loft. That makes sense. As far as the first part of the um, question that Tom had, um, do, do we have to always use the full motion simulator or can you all, all, also use fixed base simulators? And uh, I, I can answer for Acme. The only time that we really use the fixed base simulators, Tom, is when we're getting checked out on a new aircraft type or new to us, um, where uh, they don't need, in other words, you know, you're going through procedures and flow patterns with checklists and that kind of thing. And it's not so critical that you are in an airplane that's actually on hydraulic jacks uh, to simulate the flying part of it. Um, although I think that there are some companies that will use the fixed base, you know, the non uh, motion simulators for that kind of flying as well, or a mix of that and the, uh, and the full motion simulators. But when we go, at least at Acme, when we're doing our recurrent training, uh, once we're, we're checked out on a particular airplane and we're going to our, you know, once a year or once every nine months or six months or whatever it is, um, they're always in the full motion uh, simulators. 
Yeah, I'd, I'd agree. Any of those formal checks that are an absolute uh, confirmation of your flying ability must be done in a formation simulator. And, uh, of course, a lot of them, particularly if it's a zero flight simulator, knows you're going to make your first flight with passengers and it'll be in a real airplane. You're not going to practice landing or in an empty airplane just to see if you can do it. You're going to do everything in the simulator. That simulator has to be of a sufficient standard and have the visuals of a sufficient standard and has to be certified by the authority of whichever country you're in, the FAA or the CAA in our case, to confirm that it's of a good enough standard to be able to conduct that type of training. It's all quite formal and all uh, the CIA have to check out those uh, simulators and they have to be maintained to a very high standard of realism to make sure that they're good enough to be able to complete that type of training. Yes. All right. And I think this will be the last one. I think we're getting close to our three hour point. Um, item 15, Peter, uh, greetings from LaGuardia, where I'm writing you feedback from within the new Terminal B. Uh oh, is he trapped there? Probably. Oh, no. He's see like uh, Tom Hanks. Yes. <laughs> in the movie. What was Let that called? Out. Terminal? <laughs> Something yes, like that? Um, I was curious about a recent discussion on the show about flashing your lights at night to help other aircraft better see your position. That led me to wonder, why don't you leave the landing lights on all the time? Smooth guys, etc. Peter. What do you think, Nick? Why don't you leave the landing lights on all the time? Like well, motel there stuff. are some cases where a captain will decide to do that because mm -hmm. uh, he thinks that it's a safer way to fly. Um, I remember chatting to engineers uh, in Johannesburg. Now, the reason it was Joburg was because uh, over Africa, uh, air traffic control isn't the same standard as perhaps other parts of the world. So you do take extra precautions. And a lot of captains were saying, well, I'm not only am I going to do all these extra transmissions, not only am I going to sidestep from the, from the center of the airway to, uh, off to one side, I'm going to leave my landing lights on the whole time. And the uh, engineers down at Joburg were going, well, you know, we're replacing an awful lot of extremely expensive uh, very high-powered bulbs, and not only that, the transformers behind the uh, landing lights, uh, they're, they're not really designed to be on for hour after hour after hour, and uh, we're losing a lot of those transformers. Some of them are burning out, etc. So, uh, you know, do you guys really have to leave your landing lights on for eight or ten hours? They're really, really bright lights. Yeah. They produce a lot of candle power. Of course, uh, now in modern technology, you probably find that uh, you can get the same equivalent power with the lower voltages. Uh, I don't know if LED lights are being used in landing lights yet, but it might get to that point, in which case you could. But usually, uh, there's one, there's no need because uh, you're under radar control. You're being well separated. We've got all these additional aids for avoiding each other, including the compulsory lights we need to carry which are navigation lights although they're i never thought they were very um, bright and the actual legal requirements are actually very i think poor yeah <laughs> they, they're quite a low candle power or a lumens level mm -hmm. for navigation lights so you know i've never thought that was brilliant but uh, most aircraft have uh, very high powered strobes and the addition of landing lights which are after all directional um uh, you know, they provide no protection 
uh, for all around the rest of the aircraft, uh, you know, so having them on isn't necessarily uh, a huge advantage. But we always put them on when we come below 10,000 feet. I think that's a general yeah, standard around the world. That's really where you want to make sure that your um, people can see you. Uh, there's a lot more traffic below 10,000 feet. Um, and the, uh, the distances between aircraft, um, diminishes when you are below 10,000 feet as well. Um, but, uh, I was going to say something, or I'm looking at the discussion in the chat room about led lighting and believe it or not. Uh, and I know many of you will find it hard to believe that the mad dog is actually getting, uh, outfitted with, uh, re- when they replace lights, they are replacing them, replacing them with led lights, uh, on the, uh, the wing tip landing lights and the taxi lights and such. So yeah, Al says that a lot of his their buses he flies have LEDs and all the new and generation course, ones are the new jets are coming out yeah. with LEDs. And of course, uh, that they burn much cooler mm-hmm. uh, and produce a lot of power for what they're on. Then and uh, you know, a great idea because you don't have to have vast voltages to. And I, th- uh, I think they last out. quite a bit longer too. Well, that's what well, I tell you. It depends how hard you land them. Owls don't last very long. <laughs> oh, and another interesting thing is it depends, <laughs> depends on the aircraft, but on the Mad Dog, the actual landing lights themselves are uh, like 10, 12-inch diameter lights that um, are normally fared with the wing on the underside, on the wingtips, that actually uh, rotate 90 degrees and are, uh, are in the windstream uh, and are are kind of almost like little tiny speed brakes that uh, they, they're cool. produce they're a like lot of a drag. Um, Ferrari, aren't they? Little Ferrari headlights. Yeah, but they out. vibrate way too much. And, uh, Do they? Yeah, well, and they cause I a lot of drag. Ferrari probably vibrates. Yeah, too. probably so. <laughs> so that's another reason why we don't turn our landing, you know, landing lights on. And then, uh, yeah, whatever. Good question, though. Good question and great answer. Thank you, Nick. All right. Anything I can do. How are we doing? Oh, you know what? Oh, I'm going to squeeze one more in there. That's what she said. The actress to the bishop. (laughs) (laughs) You beat me to it. Um, (laughs) Great minds, right? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You remember, and many, many people that are new to the the show uh, haven't gone back and uh, haven't not, have not quite caught the APG syndrome and aren't listening to early. uh, Can you believe it? No, I don't. Um, and a lot of people that are new to the show, new to the show, who haven't listened to earlier episodes, inevitably, I get one of these every month or two. Oh, have you seen this great video on YouTube? It's uh, Captain, uh, let's see, Kurt Kent Ween, uh, who's talking about you know what he loves about the MD eighty Cockpit Chronicles, I think it's called. And uh, I just happened to see this uh, just a few days ago. Uh, Cockpit Chronicles MD eighty uh, C.R. Smith Museum exhibit, and the C.R. Smith Museum has uh, cut off a cockpit of an MD-80 and created a really neat exhibit, and this is uh, Kent, uh, his writing, uh, where my voice gives you a tour of all the quirky features of the airplane. I was lucky to first see the finished product with my two daughters while they were uh, with me when we passed through Dallas and had a stopover there. Be sure to watch the original video that inspired this museum exhibit. And so there's a link to the uh, original video that everybody's always referring me to. Have you seen this? <laughs> yes, many, many times. Um, and uh, it's kind of cool to see Kent 
uh, a little bit older now, and um, I don't know what airplane that he's flying, but uh, it's kind of cool that they asked him to be the voice of uh, this exhibit at the C.R. Smith Museum in Dallas. And uh, we'll put a link to the video in the show notes so you can watch uh, the the new and improved Kent and uh, his uh, little tour of the uh, display and apparently the Captain Al has met him. So he's oh, really? a lovely guy. Yes. Oh, wonderful! Yeah, he is a lovely. Well, he seems to be a lovely guy. I've not met him myself. Oh, uh, apparently the three twenty landing lights also dropped down, causing oh, drag. How about that? Okay, I didn't know that. It's amazing. Isn't so it? I guess they don't do that on your uh, the big boys, huh? No, ours are embedded in the uh, in leading the leading edge. edge of the wing root. Okay, yeah. that makes sense. All right, with that for sure, uh, we're going to go ahead and uh, end today's show. On anything that we didn't get to in today's episode, we'll move to the next. In fact, I think Liz is already doing some housekeeping because I, I was looking at one of my notes here, and then all of a sudden it just like disappeared. And I'm like, what the heck? <laughs> what happened to it? <laughs> and it just like reshuffled everything. I'm going, okay, Good I know, job, what, Liz. I know what's happening. Liz is already working <laughs> on next week's episode, and uh, so thank you, Liz, for well, all we your only hard missed work. A couple. Yeah, I think we we did a pretty good job. And, Absolutely. Um, so thanks for watching the show with us today especially those of you who are here with us live. And uh, remember that we do uh, do this uh, on a video platform, although that we don't really we don't really plan this as a standalone video show. It's just kind of a behind the scenes of us recording the audio podcast. And you can check that out by going to our YouTube channel, Airline Pilot Guy. And uh, we also have a great website, AirlinePilotGuy.com, where you can find information about the crew, the community, merchandise uh let's see what else do we have there we have plain tales its own special page by the way you can subscribe to plain tales as a standalone podcast as well and review it on apple's itunes and podcasts and whatever podcast catcher you're using um what else we have um apps for our iPhones and Android devices on their respective app stores. Just look for or do a search for Airline Pilot Guy, three words. And we're also on social media. And that's where Captain Nick comes on. (laughs) Tell us about that. Yeah. Okay, we are on Twitter, um, as somebody once told me it was called. Um, and if uh, you want to attract our attention, then please direct uh, your uh, criticisms to <laughs> at <What>? APG Crew. <laughs> <laughs> and then Captain Jeff will personally get them. Uh, at <laughs> APG Crew. <They're, laughs> that, that is the handle to use. Now, if you want to go... Oh, yeah, oh, so, uh, I see you've docked, had your pay docked again. Yeah. So dollars you, going down the tubes. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you're if you're a Facebook person, then uh, you can find us at Bless usual your Facebook <laughs> preamble, and we are uh, airline pilot guy. Yes, and yes. as mentioned at the beginning of the show, we uh, are also we have a, a Slack team on Slack. APG listeners. Please join us on our Slack team. Slack is a communication, coordination, and sharing platform that works on your mobile, laptop, or browser. On Slack, we share ideas and news. We suggest episode and Plain Tales topics. We plan events and meetups. To get into the Slack team, please email me at slack at airlinepilotguy.com. That's 
S-L-A-C-K, Sierra Lima Alpha, Charlie Kilo, at AirlinePilotGuy.com. Or send me a tweet with your preferred email address to at Hillel, and I'll send you an invitation. That's Hillel, spelled H-I-1-1-E-1, Hotel India, one one Echo 1, and see you in Slack. All right, thanks, Hillel. And as always, thanks to our producer, production assistant, uh, Liz Piper in Toronto. We do appreciate all the help. And Roger, uh, Roger Stern, Radio Roger, for our introductions. And until next... Yes, very. Uh, Until next time, wishing you all clear skies, unlimited visibility, and tailwinds. Take care, and God bless. Bye, everybody. Bye, everybody. Hello. Bye-bye. Bye. That's not funny. Good day.